Hi, I'm Mark Gallagher. You're listening to the Everything F1 podcast, driven by the fans, for the fans. Hello and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast with me, James Tiller. Today, alongside me from the Everything F1 team, we've got Coops. Hi, Coops. How are you? Hello, I'm well. Thanks. How are you? Very good. Thank you very much. Uh, just been busy working away today, and you? Yeah, yeah. I just not that long in from work, to be honest. There you go. Busy, busy. Uh, and also, we've got Sean. How are you doing, Sean? I am as happy as a George Russell in the rain. How are you? <laughs> very good analogy there. Very good. Well, I'm very, very happy, actually. Uh, we've got a very special guest with us today. Uh, you may, well, I, I have no doubt that you've heard of his name, Mark Gallagher, uh, and he's here to chat to us about the Belgian Grand Prix and, of course, his career to date. So, hi, Mark. How are you? I'm really good, and it's a pleasure to join uh, you guys. Thanks so much for inviting me along. The pleasure is all ours, believe me. <laughs> we, we, we can't can't wait to get stuck in. Um, for the fans, as I say, I, I think pretty much everyone but for maybe for the one or two that don't could you kind of give us a brief uh, kind of just an explanation of what it is that you do or have done throughout your career yeah 40 years in <laughs> 40 40 years man and boy actually uh, Dutch Grand Prix this weekend um, is uh, it was the first Grand Prix I ever worked at which was in 1983 so that gives you uh um, uh, a picture of when everything started. That's 38 years ago. So I started my career working in the media. I worked for Autosport um, magazine, then became a freelance media and uh, journalist and broadcaster, and then jumped the fence into team uh, management, really through working um, as a freelancer, working with sponsors, but then really, I suppose, most notably spending quite a long period of my career working with Eddie Jordan at the Jordan Grand Prix team, right from the beginning of... Jordan's journey when we announced the creation of the team in 1990 until I left the team in uh, 2003 and uh, then joined Red, what became Red Bull Racing. Went from there to start my own team, ran, uh, founded a team called Status Grand Prix uh, along with uh, uh, a fellow Irishman, Mark Kershaw from Dublin and uh, we did the A1GP Championship which we won in 2009. And then I was invited to run the Colesworth Formula One engine program, which I did for the next couple of years. Uh, and for the last eight years, since I hit the big five zero, when I turned 50, I decided to work for myself. And I, to be honest, I do a multitude of things. But I think most notably, from the point of view of listeners, I do a lot of work at corporate events, including with a lot of quite well-known Formula One drivers. I work very closely with the likes of uh, David Coulthard and Mika Hakkinen and a few of the names from days gone by, but I've also had the pleasure of working more recently with drivers like Lewis Hamilton. And uh, so, yeah, I'm still I'm still uh, learning and still enjoying being involved in Formula One. Excellent. That's Where do we begin later on? We have to unpack all of that. That's that's a lot to unpack. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to chatting to you all about that uh, later on in the podcast, Mark. Um, but let's talk about this weekend. Uh, in the Belgium Grand Prix at Spa, Franco Champs. So, it was a bit of a wet squab, wasn't it? It was. It wasn't exactly the the show that we wanted to see. Um, it was all kind of. It was all basically uh, done on the Saturday. 
Um, what were your initial thoughts uh, of the race? I'll, I put it in inverted commas uh, because obviously there wasn't actually any racing. Um, yeah. what, what was your init- initial thoughts about how it went? I, I just thought typical Spa, you know, Spa throws up, a, it just throws a curveball um, now and again. Sometimes it's a curveball that gives us great excitement and, yeah. um, you know, you have a spectacular race and, um, you know, whether we're talking about Michael Schumacher's debut in 91 or, you know, Jordan's first victory there in 1998, I've had some really memorable weekends there. I've also had weekends there where I really wished I was somewhere else because of the weather, uh, which is in that microclimate in uh in the Ardennes and uh I forget which year it was I think 1986 we turned up and the track the track had just been resurfaced and it completely broke up and the Grand Prix had to be cancelled so we've had we've had the good the bad and the ugly but we've never quite seen what we saw on Sunday and I think there are lots of there are lots of factors that played into ultimately what happened I mean we very clearly didn't have a race and um I my own perspective on it all is that the right decisions were made from a safety perspective. And I think um, I think everyone really needs to put themselves in Michael Massey's shoes and walk a mile in his shoes. His primary responsibility is not to keep fans and social media happy. His primary responsibility mm. is to look after the lives of the drivers. And uh, we can get into that. We can get into the context around some of his decisions in a while, but his first and foremost you know focus was on safety and i think from that perspective he made the toughest right decisions and ultimately what happened was that we didn't have a grand prix because of because it was too dangerous and i think in that he had the full support of drivers and teams etc so a lot of the other stuff was quite badly handled i'm talking about in terms of communications and all the also the optics of of how some of the decisions were being communicated, but that's not Michael Massey's responsibility. And I think there's a wider, there's a wider lesson for Formula One as as a as a sport and for the Formula One company and for the FIA uh, to learn and to reflect on. I think we're already seeing that in the days afterwards. Ross Braun, John Todd, everyone is being very clear. That there's a lot to be learned from what happened on Sunday. But I think in terms of the race not happening. There were, uh, my view is that they made the right decision not to go ahead. Desperately disappointing yeah. as that was for everyone. And I'll just finish by saying uh, that I, you know, I've unfortunately witnessed fatalities at races. And I mean, today we're recording this podcast on the second anniversary of Antoine Hubert losing his life at, at Spa-Francorchamps. Yeah. And there's a really weird thing that we've noticed in the past, which is sometimes a really bad weekend actually follows a trajectory. So you start having accidents and the accidents just get progressively worse. And then you end up with a catastrophe. And of course, very famously, we saw that in, in Imola in 1994 with Rubens Barrichello's accident on the <clears throat> on the Friday. Then Roland Ratzenberger's fatality on the Saturday and then Ayrton Senna on the Sunday. And I feel that after the five-car pileup and the W Series event and then Lando Norris's a uh, pretty horrific accident in qualifying. Mm. There was a kind of a sense that there was a, a something building, and uh, I think all of that will have undoubtedly played on the minds of everyone involved in making the decisions. And you know, we got what we got, which was effectively a non-event. Yeah, which is is such a shame for a, a track like Spa. Um, you know, it's it's a classic track that pretty much I I don't think I've ever heard anyone say a negative word about it. To be honest with you, everyone everyone loves to watch Spa. Uh, it, it it's one of the you know. The jewels in the crown. Uh, obviously, it's not the jewel in the crown at Monaco, but it's one of the one of the thing races that F one fans uh, specifically 
like to tune into every single year. So have any of you um, guys ever been? Not to Spa, no, no. Uh, that's a shame. You gotta, you gotta make the trip. It's uh, it, it, it is worth it. You know, you have to pack your cagoule and your umbrella and your Wellingtons and be prepared for the worst. But, I mean, it is a fabulous place. And if you, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a trip worth planning because I think to go to Spa is certainly to visit visit a pretty special place. And we actually all seem to know it so well from watching it over the years and. Uh, I have to say, I think it's just a, a marvelous venue. It's like a we'd have to be like a pilgrimage for uh, F one fans, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> um, let, let's talk about the qualifying then, because we did get some action over the weekend, and, and it's really entertaining the yeah. action on the Saturday. Actually, uh, obviously, we did have a, a slight delay with the weather, um, but it it brought out something in uh, one particular driver. I'll, I'll say his name, George Russell, um, <laughs> that that we you know really enjoyed uh, witnessing. Um, he managed, and we thought it was going to be pole at one point, um, yeah. until Max Max Verstappen uh, pumped in that fast faster lap. But he he just performed amazingly, didn't he? Yeah, fantastic. I think it's, I remember George dominating a GP three race at Spa a few years ago, and uh, you know he's a great champion in the lower formula, right, roll the way from junior and senior karting, and and right through to, you know being very competitive in Formula 3. I think he was um, in the FIA Formula 3. I think he was second place in the rookie uh, standings against Charles Leclerc when he did it. Then he won the GP3, you know, GP, uh, then Formula 2. I mean, he's he's just such a formidable talent. And like we have seen in the past with top talents when they, unlike Lewis Hamilton, who managed to get himself into a McLaren Mercedes straight away, but when a top driver gets into... <laughs> a not particularly brilliant car, as has happened with George and, and the Williams, the frustration of being in that uncompetitive car um, for the top drivers kind of dissipates because they just focus on doing the best possible job they can. And and we've seen it with Alonso in the minority or, you know, Mark Webber when he was in the minority. And, and, you've, and now we've seen it with uh, George and the Williams. And my word, uh, yes, we didn't have a race on Sunday, but what we saw on Saturday was pretty special because no one's ever going to forget George Russell sticking the Williams on, you know, P two. I mean, it mm. it looked it, it looked <laughs> crazy, didn't it? I mean, it just looked crazy. And um, I'm a big fan of Williams. I mean, who isn't a fan of Williams? At the end of the day, they're such an iconic team. But I suppose I'm quite a particularly big fan because I spent uh, some time working with them when we were supplying them with engines at Cosworth and. You could see the decline within the team in in a number of ways uh, at that time, and there's it's just felt like it needed the shake up which it's now had under uh, Jos Capito uh, coming in. And what's really interesting is that um, really just by having a change of leadership and a new approach and being prepared to to do things a little bit differently effectively the same group of people with effectively the same car and now doing some pretty special things and then George just wrings its neck and you know I don't I should I don't think we should forget the fact that Latifi did a pretty good job as well but George yeah. George absolutely nailed it fantastic he, you know? he is just Mr Saturday he, he he's, <laughs> he's able to t he's able to put that that car in places that no one ever expects it to be yeah, and obviously you know, he, he is so determined to get rid of Mr being Mr Saturday he wants to be Mr Sunday <laughs> so he's uh, you know that's the thing uh, you mentioned earlier well we'll go, we'll go over to uh, Sean now uh, you mentioned earlier uh, though Mark about Lando Norris's big accident up uh, up until that Sean um Lando was having a great qualifying session too wasn't he 
Uh, my money was on him for pole. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he he he, he top Q one and Q two, didn't he? Yeah. Um, that McLaren, that McLaren in actually both of their hands because Danny pulled it out of the bag in the end as well. Um, it likes the rain. It likes a combination of high downforce, which there would have been in the rain, and pretty high speed. Um, I just looked hooked up, didn't it? Um, it was very impressive, and I feel like we say this on pretty much every podcast every week now, but. Lando Norris is such a star, isn't he? He's comfortably the driver of the season. I think we could. I think I'm safe in saying that we all agree on that Absolutely. one. Um, George is pushing him for it now, <laughs> um, but um, that was a scary moment, a really, really scary moment. Myself, and my girlfriend sat there in just total silence, and immediately, obviously, my mind went to 2019, mm. um, which obviously there was a few more cars on track during that one, but. I knew Vettel was coming up behind him um, and that was a scary moment and you, you could tell a bit sooner that it wasn't as serious because the TV footage kind of stayed on yeah. him. Um, I think as soon as they saw him moving, they were, they were like, right, he's fine. Yeah, let, show let's him again. let's show um, him. The, uh, yeah. Yes, which I think allayed a lot of concerns um, and obviously we had like Grosjean and stuff like that but there was no TV coverage on him for about 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was quite good, I think, of Vom and everyone involved to get it shown quickly that he's fine, he's moving, he's getting out of the car. That was great. Good, um, you know, protection from the car, but I'm sure we're going to touch on this, like the, the, the safety aspect of Arouge a bit later Ooh. and Radion. Um, <laughs> it's Radion, actually. But uh, <laughs> it is Radion, actually. <laughs> um, but it was an identical crash to all the other big ones the 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 w series where he went off to the left smashed that barrier which literally funnels them back onto the track and how that's been allowed to continue in such a way for so many years is a complete mystery to me i know there's talks of the redevelopment to that specific offer and especially happening um but i felt i feel like especially with lando this weekend that was very scary hindsight's 2020 but that should have been changed uh, before Antoine Hubert's crash obviously but that should have been changed at least two years ago yeah interesting point you make Sean and I think my only comment would be that with with the Lando Norris accident and it it kind of takes me back you know 20 years ago to Jacques Villeneuve and and his teammate having big accidents there in their BARs so we've had those kind of ricochet accidents at the exit of Eau Rouge up over Radion you know, for some time. And I think probably the the worst thing about it is is when you're watching it and you see the cars actually spinning around, having hit the hit the arm and they get flicked into those high speeds. What's much more concerning is not so much the fact the, the, the fact of, of going off there, hitting the wall and ricocheting along. And as we've seen with Lando, he he was okay. And as we saw with Jacques Villeneuve twenty years ago, he was okay. And we've seen lots of other accidents where drivers have walked away. The difficulty is, as I mentioned earlier, when you look back at the Antoine Hubert accident from two years ago, it's it's not the accident that you first have, it's what happens afterwards. And it's it's the fact that somebody comes over the crest, as happened with Hubert and, you know, Juan Manuel Correa hit him at 170 miles an hour and, mm. you know, just destroy, destroyed the car. So, and I think that was the thing about the W Series accident. Now, obviously the speeds in W Series are... are a lot lower, but that that's not to say the impact is not still significant. And we saw some, we saw multiple impacts there. And again, that that's the thing that is very noticeable about 
the move towards these tarmac runoff areas is that um, yeah. there is a it's brilliant in the dry when the driver can hit the brakes and use the power of the brakes to slow down. Um, it's not so good when you have the conditions that we had at the weekend and and I think uh, I think everyone's pushing at an open door to to have further modifications. Uh, carried out, and the plan that's in the plan that is in the pipeline just needs to be accelerated now, so that Eau Rouge and Radion can continue in their current uh, form, as in terms of the racetrack. But there's the safety around it uh, needs to be uh, I th- improved. I think if if you don't mind, it's interesting you said that like in the dry. Obviously, those runoffs do make sense because there's time to slam on the brakes. You think of somewhere like Abu Dhabi. Even if you're yeah. coming in and your brakes don't work, yeah. you still have loads of time to just slow down naturally. Yeah. But you look at somewhere like the um, Hockenheim a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, yeah. it's much slower corner, completely different, but it was sopping wet and the drivers all went off. And as soon as they went off onto that, what is essentially, a, it literally, it was a drag strip, that particular final corner. Yeah. Um, it was especially yeah. dramatic, but you saw, as soon as they got on the drag strip, nothing. They had no chance. The drivers who, like Lewis who were able to get it kicked back into gear once they hit the gravel, got back in the game. But it was the tarmac that ruined them and sent them into the barriers, not the gravel. Uh, there's no, no no doubt about it that I think as well, there's uh, there's already an understanding that um, a kind of one-size-fits-all approach to every corner on every track doesn't really work. Different tracks have different topography and different challenges. And of course, at Spa, we've always had this issue of the topography around the track and as i understand it um a number on a number of occasions over the years not being able to get private individuals to allow that to allow their buildings to be demolished to make way for you know further track improvements but nevertheless you know spa is a lot safer than it was um but there is a reoccurrence of accidents at that corner the thing is the drivers all go for it and they want to get they want to take Eau Rouge flat and uh, they know the run down you know the run up the hill to Lacombe chicane is just so critical in terms of overtaking opportunities so everybody wants to blap down from the la source hairpin and and get those two corners absolutely spot on but the problem is once the grip levels start to go away from you that you know you're chasing something that is quite questionable whether you can continue to to chase that and i mean not to not to be too too boring about the old days but um when i first started working in formula 1 in the 80s um you could you could actually stand at the armco which was at the apex of Eau Rouge, at the bottom of the hill you could you could stand at the armco and the only thing on the other side of the armco was the uh, was the curb and I wish I still had them, but I remember standing there actually trying to get a photograph into the cockpit of Senna's car and Prost's car and Mansell's car as they apexed on that corner. And that that's how it was back then. There was literally no room at all. And of course, the big thing was who can take it flat and all the rest of it. So Eau Rouge has been you know, part of the mystique and the appeal of, of um, Spa-Francorchamps for a long time. But I, I think... Just in the current climate, with a lot of what's happened in recent years, and I'd say particularly with the Hubert accident of a couple of years ago, there is a heightened tension around accidents at that corner. And at the weekend, Lando Norris's accident just, I mean, it was, as I say, it perhaps wasn't as, I'm not going to say as bad as it looked, that's not the right way to put it. It was clearly a very serious accident. But the fact that he was on his own 
and the, every all of the safety systems on their car in terms of the crash structures they all did their job uh, and he and he was fine but it's when you have as we saw in the formula 3 race my goodness you know when you have a bunch of uh, cars barreling in there and quite frankly some of the drivers just hoping for the best it's not looking very clever. <laughs> not at all. What are the uh, coupes? You you were talking about the the plans earlier, um, before before we chatted on the podcast. What are the plans to make the corner safer? Well, from what I could see in the articles that I found, I think you can't do anything on the right hand side of that corner where the kind of issues where Hubert's accident was, uh, because I think you, the, there's a river at the other side of that armco. So if you go to the right-hand side, you're, they're pretty much maxed out, and I think that's the pit lane exit for the GT classes as well, if I remember right. I think what they're doing is, I think, from what I can remember, and they didn't really go into too much detail, but they're going to move the barrier on the left flatter, so it's going to stop the trajectory of the car coming back across the track. And there is conversation, or there was mention of gravel traps being put back in. So, again, it makes it more as Mark's kind of touched on it makes that corner more all weather safe rather than mm. just more dry safe and I think the fact that you've got all tarmac it means that drivers have, there's more reward than risk you, when it comes to just the tarmac, like tarmac, or you go off you just keep driving so if there's a gravel trap and you're going to put a wheel on there your lap's done and you've only just started it so you know Stick a gra- I don't see what the problem ever was about gravel traps. You know, I don't know. I'm a bit. I think it's to do with them to rolling over. I think it's the barrel roll aspect of it. But I think that's what they're doing. Yeah, some of the gravel traps did get a bad reputation. I remember Senna rolling his car at the at the Parabolica in Mexico, uh, the Peraltada rather. Uh, I think it was in, in Mexico, and you know the car dug in. But um, the rea- But you know, there've been a number of really good comments over the weekend um, from. The likes of of Karen Chandok, who you know I, I regard as one of the, not I mean I'm going to describe him as a pundit. He's way more than a pundit. I mean he's an expert because he's a he's a former Formula One driver. And Karun's point is absolutely spot on. You know the, the more you give drivers more tarmac to play with, the more they they either consciously or unconsciously are using the fact that there's tarmac there to to take a bigger run at things. And you know if I mean. <laughs> My wife and I were talking about it the other day, and I, I said to her, you know, the if the Armco barrier the whole way through Eau Rouge and Radion was was the curb, if the curb was the Armco barrier, if you made Eau Rouge and Radion like the run up the hill from Saint Devote and Monaco, just Armco barrier the whole way, the mm. drivers would take it in quite a more circumspect way. <laughs> Think twice about, you know, how they would approach the corner, and all of a sudden taking it flat um, might become less of a less of a focus than than just getting it right and and I, I think this is one of you know when people talk to me about Monaco and say well it's a waste of time we should cancel it because you can't overtake a Monaco the thing that Monaco remains is an incredible test of a driver's precision in where he places the car in order to get you know optimal speed and, and lap time out of it and I think it's I think it's uh, and and some of the other circuits as well we you know we, we've had this track limits discussion going on for for quite a while and I think the you know, I'm certainly a believer that as the sport has become fundamentally safer because of the safety of the cars, I do think that we have generations of drivers coming through now who 
who don't have a lot of uh, imagination as to what might happen if it all goes terribly wrong. And and when it all goes terribly wrong, it's still as catastrophic today as it ever was. The only difference is they're a little bit more protected because of the systems on the cars. But um, yeah, I was so happy to see Lando Norris, um, you know, check out okay. And then obviously he was permitted to to race on Sunday. But I mean, my goodness, both he and, and George, um, they set they set the track alight, if that's the right thing to say, on Saturday. And what what a great couple of talents they are. Yeah, well, we, we've we mentioned it uh, on, on previous podcasts, but there's no harm in mentioning it again. The future of British uh, racing drivers in Formula One is is absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, we've got, we've got some, you know, if, even when our, you know, seven-time, could be potentially eight, nine-time champion does retire, we've got some real good, real great prospects. To- yeah. Okay, is there any, anything you want to speak about uh, the rest of qualifying, uh, Coops, before we kind of move on to any other conversations about no, the I race? No, I think everything's pretty much been touched on. Uh, although me sitting watching it on Saturday and going, oh, he's got Paul! Oh, no, never mind. Uh, you know, it, it was, <laughs> I, I just, I, I'm, I mean, I'm a McLaren fan. Uh, don't really particularly follow one driver, mm. but to see George almost getting a pole... You know, it was, it was nice to have a Williams up in the top two. And I've, I started for watching Formula One in the early 90s, so Williams at the front was part of just Formula One. So it was, it was so, nice so Coops, to see is that. that. Is, so, Coops, is that why you have a papaya-coloured beard? Yes, you're a big Mc- it, it, it's very much the case. Yes, yeah, because you're a big McLaren fan. A okay. big McLaren fan, and I drink so a lot of Iron Brew. That's, uh, that's what it is. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, Coops, you need to do something about the state of future Scottish Formula One drivers because, as I said in my introduction, I, I work a lot with DC and uh, have good good friends with uh, Alan McNish and all the rest of it. We need we need more Scottish talent coming through again. Oh, I, I'm not even sure where they're where they're at. I need to go find them. No, uh, no, exactly. I'm afraid I, it's not like I'm about to open up some amazing insight that I'm going to give you on future on future future <laughs> Scottish talent. But um, they do seem to, they do seem to come over the horizon from time to time, and they tend to be damn good when they do. I think we need some Irish talent in Formula One. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't don't talk to me about don't talk to me about it. We could do a whole podcast on on why why Ireland is struggling to produce more. I'm do- Formula One drivers, but I'm doing, I'm doing, a, tra- I'm doing a track day myself in Mondello Park this coming Saturday. Maybe if I set the world on light, Eddie Jordan will give me a call and go, I have a seat for you. <laughs> Dear me, you're, you're too old, mate. You're too no, old. Ed, sorry, no, Eddie's too old. Eddie's, Eddie's too, old. too old. I mean, so- <laughs> maybe, maybe he'll know someone. Yeah, I have yeah. Mark Safnauer's number there. Give him a call. Let's talk about the ill-fated inverted commas race uh, with this that we had this weekend. Uh, it obviously wasn't a race; it was all a procession behind the safety car. Um, but you know, the, the FIA, Michael Massey, they delayed the start. They delayed, delayed, delayed. We had formation laps, uh, and then eventually uh, we had two laps that were considered racing laps that were behind the safety mm. car um, after about four hours of waiting. Uh, and they'd done enough laps to consider the race, to classify the race, and give half points. Um, now let's just let's just ask your opinion on this, Mark. Uh, Mark, do do you think <laughs> it was deserving of half points that race or inverted commas race? No, I don't. I don't think it was deserving of of, of points. Um, uh, I think a cancelled race is a cancelled race. You, you you can't say that 
the points were awarded on merit. People were, you know, I've 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 read comments about, you know, the the fact that the drivers all did their work on Saturday and George Russell deserved his podium because of what happened on Saturday. But um, Saturday's not Sunday, and the race didn't take place, and overtaking was not not permitted, and so we didn't have a race, and and it was incredibly uh, frustrating for the fact I can't imagine I cannot imagine the stories that must uh, be out there from fans who went to that race including fans who perhaps been putting up with COVID for 18 months like the rest of us saved up their money perhaps taken their family a father who's taken his son uh, a mother who's taken their kids you know a boyfriend and girlfriend have made a made a weekend of instead of having a holiday this year somewhere abroad they went to the Belgian Grand Prix and and then ended up with with what happened. So the frustration is absolutely tangible, and I feel desperately sorry for them. And I think all the fans who were there on Sunday deserve some form of. Uh, I'm going to use the word compensation, but in its broadest sense, because um, mm. this is a big test of Formula One's leadership in terms of what they do next. Um, I think if I was a fan and I'd spent. I don't know, 1,200 euros or 1,500 euros on three or four grandstand tickets, I'd, I'd be pretty pretty unhappy to be told that, well, it is what it is. So I think there's, I have a lot of faith that the right thing will ultimately be done in some way. And it may not be that people have cash returned, but it may be that they discover they have tickets for next year or there'll be some other form of thing happen. And, and, and I hope that that is the case. Um, Formula One's in an incredibly difficult position because they have lost a ton of money thanks to the global pandemic. They've been working day and night. Chloe Target Adams rescheduling the championship. She and her team have done an amazing job of putting on a 17-race championship last year. They're still trying to put on 22, 23 races this year. So I think what's happened on Sunday was was extremely unfortunate uh, for the fans. As I said at the beginning, Michael Massey, from a safety perspective, was trying to do the right thing. I think where it all really went wrong for me was, first of all, that, you know, the commentators and the media quite, they've got nothing to talk about because there's no racing. So then they start talking about everything else. And, you know, with the best will in the world, you do get a lot of nonsense. So whenever Michael Massey says, well, we're going to give a weather update in 15 minutes, and then in 15 minutes, he says, well, the weather update is there'll be another weather update in 15 minutes. The media have a decision to make. So the the media can just skip over that. Because all he's doing is he's just feeding through information to the teams and the media and stakeholders of the racetrack. Or the media can start to, to to make fun of that, which is kind of what they chose to do. And they were saying, oh, well, you know, he's, his update is that there's no update. He's just doing his job. He's passing information. Yeah. If the weather hasn't changed, the weather hasn't changed. I mean, what what can he do? Yeah. He can't come on. He can't come on with a weather forecast update and say, "Oh, listen, the sun's just come over the horizon. It's all fine. It's still raining." So, all there, all. So, I think there's there was a whole kind of communication breakdown started to happen. Then, of course, you have a lot of people commentating on the races who don't fully understand all the rules and regulations and. They're desperately leafing through the rules and saying, oh, you know, we think maybe, you know, Article 16.3.2 might say that. Or at least it used to say that, but we don't know if it still says that this year. And so there's lots of all. And that's all really irritating for the fans. And I think one when I take a, a step back from it all on Sunday, one of my one of my really big comments about Sunday is that perhaps as never before, Formula One needs to have a communications director 
who actually is outward facing, in other words, facing the media and the fans. Someone, someone who hasn't isn't busy doing another job during the race. Someone whose only job is to communicate to the outside world what actually is taking place. That person is not Michael Massey. He's got a job to do. Uh, but I, when I saw him kind of pulled on to Sky Sports F1 after the race to, to kind of explain himself, I felt so sorry mm. for him. That's not his role. You know, he, he, no. he shouldn't be holed up in front of the media to justify decisions made on the basis of safety because everyone went, everyone went home to their families on Sunday night after that uh, Grand Prix weekend, and that is his objective. And so, yeah. the, so I, I just feel that the optics and the communications around what happened could have been handled better. And then I absolutely really felt, and I say this as a as someone who's been a professional on the communications and the commercial side of Formula One, worked in teams like Jordan and, and Red Bull, um, there was no need for any driver or team to be happy or triumphant about the result on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And there was no, there, th- that was a very tone-deaf experience. I think fans watching it on TV and I think spectators at home, you know, really the, the drivers and the teams needed to keep things pretty calm and say, well, you know, we'll take the points if they're giving it to us. We didn't have a race. Um, no. And we feel- but you didn't necessarily need the champagne celebrations on the, on the podium and... To me, that just seemed like someone had cut the cord between reality and the unreal world of some of the aspects of Formula One, which which have kind of forgotten what it's like to be down there with the fans, spending your hard-earned cash to follow the sport that you're passionate about. And actually, for the first time ever, I had good friends of mine on, on social media who I, I could see they were so angry and I didn't dis- I didn't agree with some of the things that they were saying, but you could you could understand it. They were so frustrated mm. with what they were witnessing, and I think that was really tone deaf because there was no need to be triumphant or celebratory uh, about what happened um, on on Sunday. And I think that just wound everyone up at the end of the race. So. Yeah. It was a very unfortunate sequence of events. I think you know. Final comment on it. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about, um, you know, the benefit of hindsight and, um, you know, we need to go away and think about what happens if this, this occurs again. Mm. I I don't think you need hindsight to imagine a situation where it rains all day and you can't have a race. Um, that, you know, it, it doesn't take any hindsight to come up with lots of different scenarios that might stop you having a Formula One race or might stop a race taking place or might cause a race to be suspended. So so somehow, despite all those rules and regulations that Formula One has, despite the vast experience of everyone involved in the sport, there was there was a degree of uncertainty. There was just uncertainty written through what was happening on Sunday. Not with Michael Massey trying to keep the race safe. I'm talking about all the other stuff. How you communicate it, how you deal with the fans, how you deal with the disappointment, how you t- deal with the media, how you how you manage the sport's reputation, that seemed to be completely out there and uh, slightly out of control. And that that's really unfortunate because there are very clever people at the top of Formula One. They've been doing, in my opinion, a terrific job in recent years to really try and rebuild the sport. 
in the post-Eccleston era, and I think they've been doing a lot of things right. But on Sunday, it was a it was a misstep in the in the management of the sports reputation. Um, Jean Todds came out today, hasn't he, Coops, uh, and said uh, and made a statement about what Formula One can learn from this. Yes, I mean I won't read the whole lot of it, but there's a couple of bits in it that are quite uh, important. Uh, I think mm. uh, one of them, uh, if I can remember, I see the actual quote, but uh, basically what he said is that Michael Massey followed the rules as they were written, and he done a good job. Yeah. But the most uh, obvious part and probably the best part is the FIA and the Formula One and the teams will carefully review the regulations to see what can be learned and improved for the future. The findings, including in the topic of point allocation, will be added to the agenda for the next F1 Commission meeting on October fifth. So the FIA president has came out and went, the rules are followed properly, but they aren't right. So mm. yeah. basically they're saying, look, we hold our hands up, we got this wrong. The rules aren't written properly. So yeah, so they've admitted the they've admitted the flaws, and they they you know they, they've held their hands up and said, look, we need to change this. We're gonna we're gonna look at it and, and do what we can, which is what we as fans will probably want from from that that kind of weekend. You can say though that you know that sorry just to to, to finish off on that point that. That's all well and good, but as kind of Mark alluded to, it's all well and good saying this in hindsight. That doesn't really help the people who sat in the rain in Spa for six hours. Um, and you mentioned there, like, trying right. to imagine all the people who were there and all the various scenarios actually have good friends who were there. They actually met at Spa oh. 10 years ago, 11 years ago, um, and sat right in oh. front of Sebastian Vettel T-boning Jensen Button. Uh, and they met there. That's where they met. They got married a few years later. They were supposed to go, obviously, last year for their 10-year oh, wow. anniversary and couldn't um, wow. and the tickets were refund- were kind of rescheduled for this year and they'd saved up for, for years it was their 10 year anniversary they got went paddock club and everything and this is what oh, they got no. um, and there was they, they, like they're, they're they knew kind of the risks you know it's spa and I even kind of joked about this in my uh, video on our YouTube channel the other day um, previewing the, the race you know we could never count out rain and spa I won't say that again because I think I jinxed it. I'm sorry. I hope this we, we can't count out sun in Zandvoort will be this week's one. Um, but uh, you know they they expected rain, but they didn't expect anything like this. Um, and they said you know even just like the whole management around it was 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 pretty poorly done because obviously everyone was kind of running around a bit like headless chickens because there had never been kind of anything like this before. But as Mark rightly said, it's spa. Like how could they not? predict something like this yeah. do you know um yeah like how many mm-hmm. things have they implemented into formula one on the grounds that something might happen it probably never will but it might yeah. um and you know like i said they, they knew the risk of going to spa but it's still a lot of money that they're probably not going to get back not that they necessarily expect to because obviously spa take a big cut of the money that they're 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 a racetrack and after everything that they've been through in the past year and a half they need the money so if they're going to get some sort of, mm. I don't know, maybe a thank you package or a we're sorry package or something like that, it'd probably come from Formula One of the teams, not Spa, which I think would probably be the right way to go about it. Um, because yeah. at the end of the day, no one can control the weather, but F1 kind of messed up by not having some sort of contingency plan. And like I said, my, my friend's 10-year anniversary was was ruined. Give them a give them a fifty percent voucher for yeah. another one, something like that on on, an, on another race, so, some, uh, something maybe like later that, on yeah. in the season or next year. I think uh, before we go, actually, just quickly, I saw today that the Belgian Grand Prix or the Belgian track 
they're actually the organisers are actually in discussion with Formula One management to see what they can do for the fans. Fair play to them. That's, so, that's fantastic that's to hear. I don't know what that is. They're just opening communication to say, right, what can we do? How do we solve this? So there is talk. What that will be is anyone's guess. Uh, I think that that's probably because the very, very um, outspoken drivers, uh, the, the, the two that, that have been very outspoken this year in terms of Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel have both said, you know, it's a farce and something needs to be done. You know, they've, they've, they've aired their opinion on, on yeah. the uh, matter. Uh, and and that, that makes people listen, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think they might they might come off Stefano Domenicali's Christmas card list for saying that. But, uh, you know, it kind of, it, it adds pressure. Um, and I think it adds pressure um, unnecessarily because the reality is that everyone who works in Formula One and the FIA and the promoter already recognised that the fans were massively inconvenienced by what happened uh, on Sunday. But, you know, fair play to Lewis and to Sebastian. They are the... I mean, they have become, haven't they, the kind of elder statesmen of Formula One, and they uh, they seem to have now be the voice of reason. And, uh, you know, they're saying that because they genuinely care about the fans, and I'm sure they're sincere about it. So let's hope that something materialises. As I say, I'm I'm hopeful that we will hope, you know, we'll see something come out of it, which will perhaps at least put a smile back on people's uh, faces. But um, I don't think anyone will ever go to Spa again in August, not prepared for every eventuality. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, I don't want to dwell on this subject too much too much longer, because we have spoken about it for a little while. Um, what I would like to, to to talk about, and it's something that I'm sure you you I think you mentioned in in our email correspondence, Mark. Um, this weekend was the 30th anniversary uh, of one Michael Schumacher um, joining the sport. Yeah. Um, you obviously you you worked with with Michael. Uh, yeah. at, at, so can you can you kind of give us kind of your your take on his debut and how massive it was for him at the time yeah you know it's it's looking back on it it's um terrific to have been there with him on the on the occasion of his debut uh did we think that he would waltz off into the distance and win 91 grand prix and seven world championships probably not but to be honest with mm-hmm. you we did think he was pretty damn good because we put him in the car for the first time ever. First time he was ever in a Formula One car was on Tuesday the 20th of August 1991 at Silverstone South Circuit. I was there with mm. him. I went over to the track with him. Um, he got in the car. He'd never driven an F1 car before. And, you know, this is a very long time ago now, 30 years ago. The car had a clutch, uh, manual clutch, and it had a, uh, a H-pattern gearbox. Um, and... <laughs> Therefore, there was a lot more literally manual work to do to drive a Formula One car back then. And I, I remember him going out onto the track and us being really lecturing him about the importance of not over revving the engine because the Ford Cosworth HB V8 was an easy engine to over rev if you got a gear shift wrong. And every right. time we over revved the engine, Cosworth would immediately replace the engine and we would get a bill of, for £30,000. And I can promise you that by August 1991, Eddie did not have £30,000 left to give Cosworth oh. for another engine rebuild. So, you know, he went down wow. onto the track and he, he was amazing. You know, he was very quick. Uh, I'll tell you one story about that first test. So the very first time he came past us to finish up, to go on to a flying lap. So it was the end of his, hmm. end of his outlap. 
he arrived at the chicane right beside the pit. The South, South Circuit had a little pit area with a chicane by it. And he arrived at the chicane so fast that he caught himself mm. out. He actually missed the braking point. And he threw the car into the chicane and he looked more like Colin McRae than uh, Ayrton Senna at that point. Um, and he, the car went completely sideways, but he caught the slide and he absolutely floored it. He fl- just flattened the throttle and did this power slide through the chicane on opposite lock. And that's on his first lap in a Formula One car, you know? And I, I, was, I was standing beside Trevor Foster, who was his race engineer at the time. And I just remember Trevor looking at me like, oh dear, <laughs> what, what, what have we got here, you know? And then he... Then he headed out onto the onto the the straight at Stoke, you know, down toward onto the hangar straight down to Stoke Corner, and you could hear him going up through the gears, and you could you could tell that he was catching the gear shifts at exactly the right point. So it became very clear very quickly that here was a young guy who was going to wring the neck of our car. And I've actually written a feature in Grand Prix Racing Magazine this month with, about our weekend and one of the things that I did for that uh, feature was I actually went and caught up with Trevor and we had a coffee a couple of weeks ago at Silverstone and Mm. talked about I talked about what it was like to be Michael's race engineer for the first weekend and Trevor told a a, a really cool story which was about the fact that Michael qualified seventh of course and Andrea Tichesaris was 11th on the grid Um, the margin of difference was half a second wow. so that's a chunky amount of time half a second a lap quicker mm-hmm. than Andrea de Cesar. and actually he was faster than that because if he had completed his fastest lap he would have qualified fifth and the only reason he didn't complete that lap was that uh, another car spun in front of him towards the end of the lap but he was he was heading to be the fifth fifth fastest and qualify fifth on the grid and in the debrief afterwards Trevor and Gary Anderson uh, were sitting there with Michael and Andrea de Cesaris, and they said to to Michael, basically, how did you do that? <laughs> um, and he said, well, he said, I realised that um, the best way to carry speed in the car was was not to mm. was not to change down gear. So he said, you know, coming through some of the fast curves on Spa, he said instead of changing down gear, I would just rest my foot on the the brake pedal but I'd keep my foot flat on the throttle. So here's a guy in his first Grand Prix weekend in 1991 using left foot braking to keep the speed in the car. And he said, I realized that by doing that, the diffuser would continue to, to work really well and would keep the downforce intact. When they then turned wow. to Andrea de Cesaris, Andrea de Cesaris admitted that for the same corner, he was changing down gear. And... <laughs> and and he said, there's a big bump in the middle and we need to change the springs and we need to change the ride height and we need to change this, we need to change that. And Michael's just gone, no, flat. Just <laughs> just keep it, take it flat. So, you know, Trevor and I, when we, we were talking about uh, what had happened that weekend, we, we, we did reflect on the fact that if Michael had not left us and gone to Benetton, what he might have achieved in that car over the balance of the season, if he was half a second a lap quicker than Andrea de Cesaris, it it is mind blowing to consider what he might have achieved over the rest of the season in the Jordan one nine one. But it was an extraordinary um, experience, and uh, I I now look back on it as a great pri- privilege to have been in there 
on ground zero of the Michael Schumacher career and then mm. to witness him go on and achieve what he did. And uh, I remain a big fan of his, even though I know there are lots of people out there who who feel he overstepped the mark on a few occasions, but he was an awesome racing driver and a very good human being. There's there's no doubting his talents. He was just, you know, you know arguably one of the goats we don't like to obviously pick a single <laughs> no. goat because we're we've got all all different generations of cars and it's, it's impossible to tell and i'm sure you agree yeah. um but cert- he's certainly one of the the goats of f1 history yeah. and it's great to, great to hear that background and it's uh you know I, i'm really looking forward to this new documentary about him yeah, um, that's great. coming out for, for netflix yeah it'll be great and you know the family have contributed um and supported it and the the filmmakers contacted me uh, about a year and a half ago and they asked me for if I would help them and they sent me a list of names and addresses and phone numbers of people they said you know could you have this guy can you find this person you know who who did this you know so we I helped them to to put some of that together and off they went to do oh wow to do their interviews and they've they've spoken to everyone who played a key role in the Michael Schumacher story uh, there are a couple of people who I'm really interested to see if they if they agreed to do the interviews because not everything was rosy in 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 the the Schumacher story. Um, um, you know, he put a couple of noses out of joint, uh, and uh, the fault was not on his side. But I think you know, uh, hopefully, the, the the filmmakers have gotten all the key people, and I I'm sure it'll be great, 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 great uh, television. I'm. It's certainly the fact that the Schumacher family's contributed means we're going to see lots of content and footage that we might not normally uh, have had the opportunity to. And I think it will, I think it'll tell a broader story about Michael Schumacher and it'll probably make us all reflect on on his contribution to the sport and the kind of individual that he is in a very different way. And of course, it, it, it's so tragic. You know, there's, a, there's almost a temptation when you're talking about Michael to talk about him in the past tense and of course mm, like yeah. like Alex Zanardi you know he's still with us but unfortunately has suffered really profound life-changing injuries it's such a shame uh the, these iconic figures and, and it, it's it's a shame that we don't hear much about obviously his progression or yeah. you know or whatever's happening uh, but I completely understand yeah. uh, why the family would want to protect that as well but it, it's nice that we're getting uh you know at, at least his story and something to kind of look forward to yeah. uh, from yeah. from his his legacy yeah really. it's fantastic it'll be, it'll be great I mean if it's if it's half as good as uh you know Drive to Survive has been I mean the Netflix effect I see it every day in the work that I do I mean the the, the corporate world or the corporate world has fallen in love with Formula One because of the Netflix Drive to Survive series. And uh, I think the Schumacher documentary mm. will be another amazing piece of, of marketing for Formula One. I think a lot of people will be will find it fascinating. My girlfriend is a Formula One fan purely because of Drive to Survive. Well, Did she? she started with that. <laughs> and then I brought her to Hungary to see, the, to see a race live and that kind of tipped her over the edge. But for herself and a few of my friends who would have always questioned like why do you like formula one it's just some people sitting down turning right and left for a few hours yeah. it's very hard to explain yeah, formula one to non-fans bunch of losers yeah. just, they just don't get it Jeez, um, they just don't get it and, and you know I'll tell you what the, the best chat up line in the world is would you like to go to a grand prix i mean i'm sorry there's no there's no right thinking girl's going to turn that down i mean i met my wife by inviting her i met my wife at a party in adelaide in 1991 and she hated formula one but i invited her to the race wow and um and she 
said yeah no problem and uh, that was that was our first date was Adelaide Grand Prix wow her sitting in the paddock and um, and wow. it's uh, and here we are 30 years later there's nothing like a paddock pass to to make them make them fall in love with you <laughs> Well, if I, if I, if I, we've just got to get there ourselves first. If I ever get the chance to get one, it won't be spa. Exactly. Exactly. If you ever invite her for a spa weekend, make sure it's not that kind of spa weekend. I, I think this is a perfect opportunity then to segue into our interview with our, our you know, esteemed guest, Mark Gallagher. Uh, we've got loads of questions. Uh, hopefully we won't keep you too long, but hopefully, you know, you, you'll, you'll, keep, you'll keep us entertained with your anecdotes and, and stories. First of all, let's talk about before you got into the career, yep. uh, the F1 career. Um, so, w- was it always Formula One that you you were striving for? Or did you wake up when you were a nine year old boy watching TV and you know listening to Murray Walker's tones on the on the you know yeah. TV and uh, in- the, that's it. the thing the thing is, um, I mean, tragically, when I was nine years old, Murray Walker wasn't even the Formula One commentator yet. It was uh, a guy called Raymond Baxter who covered Formula One oh, yeah. for the BBC, but interestingly the very first formula one race that i remember watching and i know i watched others but the one that i absolutely remember watching was the 1973 british grand prix at silverstone on tv and um i was a big jackie stewart fan i still i still am and i've been lucky to meet him and work with him and uh but you know jackie stewart really captured my imagination uh in his tyrol and then um emerson Fittipaldi in his uh John Pear, John Pear Special Lotus and all of that generation that really captured my, my imagination and you know growing up in Ireland um, you know Sean, Sean I'm sure the same applies to you it's difficult to grow up in Ireland and not fall in love with tarmac rallying and um, I loved rallies and I used to go to all the all of the big rallies in Ireland when I was a teenager I had a brother and uh, my brother has a brother-in-law who was a very accomplished rally driver and we used to go with their service crew to to some of the big rallies in Ireland at the time and it was terrific but to be honest with you um, I did really start to focus on Formula One as I got into my late teens went to university and when I came out of university I I landed a job at Autosport and uh, I won't bore you with how, how that managed to happen but they had a job going and I mean I, I can't believe it I applied for it and well, I can't believe I applied for it, but I can't believe I got it. I got this job working for Autosport when I was 21. And what, what, what was great about working in the media was that you get to know everyone because you, the moment you've got that press credential, uh, you can go in the paddock, you can introduce yourself to people. And and so that that was really, Formula One did become the focus for me. And actually, you know, when, uh, you know James, when you ask the question, was it always Formula One? I did go through phases where my interest drifted and I've, you know, liked other categories or you know, I even worked in the World Rally Championship uh, briefly and I really loved that, worked with Colin McRae for a while. Um, but actually, the older I've become, the more I've actually re-fallen in love with, with my first love, Formula One. And I, I think it is just an unutterably brilliant sport. I love every facet of it. Um, 
and I'm not one of those people who says it was much much better in the old days. Um, it was just different. Uh, you know, the old the old days have a lot of good things about them, but the old days also have a lot of bad things about them. It was a lot less professional. People lost their lives all the time. Uh, when I started working in Formula One, I kept meeting drivers who were in wheelchairs as a result of uh, you know catastrophic accidents and things like that. So when I look at the sport today, I just think it's stunning. And uh, I, I hope that with someone like Stefano Domenicali as chief executive, and he is absolutely a Formula One fan through and through, passionate, passionate, passionate guy about the sport. I think the sport's in good hands. And and so, yeah, it's Formula One. And when I look back at my life, it's uh, unquestionably going to be the one thing that runs, that's the thread that runs the whole way through it. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so... When what was your your first role with 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 autosport then is that and that's that was how you were introduced to the to, to Formula One professionally yeah did you did you get to interview some of your idols did you get to interview Jackie Stewart that early in your career <laughs> no 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 I didn't I mean the thing is when I worked so the job that I applied for on autosport was in advertising and marketing I wasn't even writing for the magazine oh, okay. um, but I. I just used that as a Trojan horse, you know, <laughs> literally I took like I took one job with the idea of doing another job once I got there. And so I started writing for the magazine and the editor started saying, OK, fine, you know, you can go and cover a Formula Ford race this weekend. And and then I, then I went freelance and I went freelance in 1986 and I started covering Formula 3000, which was effectively F2. And um, and Formula One. I started covering Formula One on a freelance basis. I was making no money, and I had no money. But I mean, I just I drove to all the races in Europe, and if I could afford the flight to Japan or somewhere, I would go to the race. And and I began to began to build a big network. My my big turning point was um, discovering that I was that I that I had an aptitude for interviewing people on stage, and that I was quite good at hosting events and. Okay. I started working with Marlborough and with Cannon and I, I got a contract with Marlborough for five years and I got a contract with Cannon and I found myself on stage interviewing Alain Prost or Nigel Mansell or Ricardo Patrese or Ethan Senna and so I and that wasn't on the media that was working with sponsors on a freelance basis you know effect, effectively event helping uh, with the events that they were putting on so I was a journalist but I was already working on the commercial side with sponsors and and I just loved that and I really fell in love with the commercial side but I just as soon as I got to meet these drivers and of course back then I was in my you know I was in my mid-20s and the drivers were generally a bit older in those days you know they were generally old and they kind of mid-30s so that there was a little bit of a generation mm. gap so i i really looked up to them you know and i I found that that really terrific and then of course um ej uh who i got to know um you know we had a we had a number of a number of touch points i was a very good close friend of martin donnelly who grew up in belfast with me and and we he ended up driving for eddie in formula 3000 and uh, obviously got his breakthrough into Formula One driving for Lotus in 1990. So there were lots of lots of touch points between me and Eddie. And uh, then obviously he told me he was going to do F1. And I helped him. I made the first, I wrote the first press release announcing the creation of Jordan Grand Prix. And then I was press officer for the team in the first season in 1991. So I then really began to leave the journalism behind and I just focused mm-hmm. on working for the teams. And um and I, I I really enjoyed that, and I, I uh, 
you know, I found working on the commercial side of the sport extremely rewarding, albeit mm. um, the drivers don't really like the commercial side of the of the teams, mm-hmm. you know, because that's just like it's a time waster for them, you know. So uh, I, I spent <laughs> I spent quite a few years trying to you know begging drivers to come and see sponsors and saying, could you please do another PR event or could you. Um, you know, could you come and talk to this chief executive who has just given us a few million quid to sponsor you and pay your salary? Um, but um, <laughs> you know, but it was great. It was a great privilege, and uh, you know, obviously met and worked with a lot of lot of really good talents at Jordan, and um, and that was it, really. Jordan will be something quite close to my heart when I was getting into Formula One in the late nineties. To show my age, yeah. um, you know, it was around about the time that you know Jordan won in in, in Spa and. Being from, you know, the part of the island that I'm from, any sort of connection to Formula One is very rare. Like, I had, I think, one friend growing up who was a Formula One fan. It's only now, like I said, with Drive to Survive (laughs) that there's more Formula One fans. So I was always kind of an outlier in being a Formula One fan. And it was great to have, to know that there was some connection to our tiny little island. Obviously, you know, Eddie Irvine, to a certain extent, is from down as well. Um, But what, what I'd love to know is kind of, Obviously, you, you, you knew the team very, very well from the start, but kind of a two-part question is, one, what was Eddie like? Like, how did Eddie, or if he did, uh, change from when the team started to the later days when he sold to to, maybe to Jaguar, wasn't it? Um, yeah. And, like, what was he like day-to-day? And then the second part is, what do you think of kind of what's become of his team now, with it being... Aston Martin, um, after the the like the, the racing point days and and, and Force India. Um, I mean Eddie, uh, I should I should actually just tell you, Sean, that Eddie Irvine was my lodger. So um, <laughs> that's that's an, nope. that's another podcast that we did in talking. <laughs> and I wish I at home with Mark and Eddie. I wish I had, I wish I had some of the audio recordings of the goings on that used to happen in our house when Eddie was there. But would uh, we it be, would have to be shown after the watershed. Would we be able to broadcast? Um, that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have to be. We have to be after the watershed. But uh, Ed, yeah. Anyway, you know. But it's interesting, you know, Sean, what you're saying there because I actually. Formula One became very big in Ireland because it was being broadcast on terrestrial television and RTE and you know you had an Irish team and you had mm. an Irish driver in Eddie Irvine uh, and I mean like myself obviously from Northern Ireland but I mean I can promise you that um, once we all ended up in the paddock Ireland was a very united place <laughs> it was, that, that, you know it didn't really matter which didn't matter whether it was Gary Anderson from Coleraine or Eddie Jordan from Dublin or me from Belfast or wherever we all came from and you know we had a we had a great time but Eddie was um Eddie put absolutely everything on the line to make that team happen I mean if you take the biggest risk you've ever taken in your career and that's what Eddie did every day for several years and he could have lost everything he could have lost his home he could have lost all his money he could have been bankrupt and I mean, at the time he put Michael Schumacher in the car in Spa in 91, I can tell you we had pretty serious debts by that time and none of it was amusing. None of it. I mean, everyone laughs laughs about it, it but it, it's so easy to laugh about it, you know, 30 years later. At the time, it was deadly serious. And Eddie and Ian Phillips, who was the commercial boss of the team at the time, um, I mean, they used to tell me about the day they sat in the Silverstone Cafe and looked at each other and realized the team would have to close in two weeks because 
there was just no money left. And that's how close it got. You know, they couldn't pay the VAT bill. They couldn't pay suppliers. They were in serious, serious, serious trouble. And that takes a huge amount of courage to do that. And so uh, what changed about Eddie was that he took that huge motivation that he had to be successful and he put everything on the line to create that team. And there's no taking it away from him that he that he got the payback because ultimately the team did make him a very wealthy guy because he, mm. first of all, the team became very profitable. It was a very successful team from a financial perspective. He was able to pay himself obviously a good, good salary um, and <laughs> had a very nice lifestyle off the back of it. And and he did sell the team, and um, he didn't. It didn't go to Jaguar. He sold it to Midland, and then of course it went to Spiker, and then it went from Spiker to Force India, and now Aston Martin. And I remember talking to Eddie on one occasion when he was feeling a little bit, I think a little bit aggrieved. He was a little bit down about the fact that he was no longer involved, and I remember saying to him, you know, Eddie, don't worry about it because in the fullness of time. The only thing people will remember is that you set up a Formula One team, that you ran it for 15 years, that you won some Grand Prix, that you made a lot of money, and that the team is still surviving, which is more than ha- that more than can be said for Alain Prost's team or the Arrows team. or lots- There's lots of other teams just disappeared. Jordan continued. And to see the team today as Aston Martin F1 is just fantastic. It's just fabulous. And when you consider that Andy Stevenson, the sporting director, and that Andy Green, the chief technical officer, were there with Jordan way back in 91, um, it's a marvellous story. There are lots of people in that team who've been there the whole way through. So I think Eddie's legacy is actually ex- extraordinary. And uh, he, he deserves more credit. You know, people kind of talk about Eddie as a bit of a joker and all the rest of it. I mean, he was a very successful team owner, and yes, you know, he's uh, he's something of a maverick, but that's one of the reasons that he was uh, successful. For on a day-to-day basis, he was, um, he could be a very demanding boss. He was relentless. Um, every every morning, you know, I would get the phone call, come and see me in my office, you know, and I'd go upstairs and we'd sit down and talk about, uh, you know, forthcoming attractions, be it uh, sending proposals to sponsors or um you know, PR events or whatever was happening. And he was constantly on the case. I mean, he was a guy, he was absolutely driven to get the next deal done, uh, to get in the next money, to win the next uh, sponsorship contract. I mean, he was just completely focused on on that. And he, he could be a tough task master, but on the other side, he looked after me very well. Um, and... Uh, I certainly, for quite a long period of time, really, really enjoyed working for him. It became less fun as the team became much larger. And then we certainly noticed that after he sold uh, a big chunk of the team to a private equity company in November 98, we, we, we started to notice the change. And, and that wasn't so much a change in Eddie as a change in the culture of the team because all of a sudden we had a much larger uh, a board of directors. We had some financial people in there. Uh, they started mm-hmm. to experiment with growing the team and diversifying it in lots of different ways. Um, you, you guys are probably too too young to remember that we we launched a Jordan drink uh, called EJ Ten, and you know the. Uh, I mean, I remember a guy standing up on the present in the boardroom one day and, t- and telling us 
that we wouldn't need any sponsors in the future because the Jordan drink was going to make so much money that the team the team would be completely self-funding and I remember EJ, EJ gives you wings is it? well EJ gives you wings but the, the, the sad thing about that and I mean you guys are laughing Ian Phillips and I were laughing about it but actually it felt it felt tragic because it was so clearly sorry to use the language but it was so clearly bullshit mm. uh, it was never going to happen and and sure enough, it didn't happen. But what it did do was it distracted the team. It distracted the leadership. And and so as the distraction grew larger, the team's results began to uh, diminish. And Trevor Foster, who I mentioned earlier on, who was uh, Michael's race engineer in that first season and team manager, I remember Trevor saying to me, you know, in 2000, 2001, he said this team is in, in sharp decline. Um, and, and so it proved. And that was that was difficult to, to witness because we, we, we lost our mojo. Mm. And, mm. and it wasn't because Eddie or me or Gary Anderson, well, Gary had left the team by that stage, but it wasn't because of individuals so much as just the, the culture of the organisation changed because it had become a little bit too... too big and um and so we we lost that kind of family magic that had been pretty special in the early days but it didn't go belly up it was sold and it's still there today Mm. and uh you know there's a little there's still a little chunk of me that that watches formula one every weekend and hopes that sebastian vettel you know nicks nicks another few wins uh, driving for aston martin Mm. and one final thing i'll tell you is that way back in 1999, uh, so 22 years ago, um, Eddie and I did a sponsorship proposal to Lawrence Stroll and to actually sponsor Jordan. Wow. And in fact, part of that sponsorship uh, discussion, Eddie was actually quite interested to get Lawrence Stroll involved as an owner of the team 20, wow. 22 years ago. Well, it didn't happen then. Uh, so it's really interesting to see that it's happened now and that Lawrence is yeah. in full control. And, um, you know, we're very lucky in Formula One to have people like Lawrence Stroll. Um, you know, the old billionaire never does Formula One any harm. No, absolutely. Well, the Jordan team and, and obviously the, it's it's successors, uh, you know, Force India. and They've always been a team that kind of have boxed above their weight, yeah. haven't they? They've, they've, yeah. always, they've always performed really well. They've been a great mid-level team yeah. that's always been there yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, um, uh, James, the, there's, a, there's a core group of people within that team who've always known how to fundamentally do a decent job. Um, and when you people like Andy Green, you know, he's 30 years of experience of designing and manufacturing Formula One cars, so... He's not going to wake up one day and suddenly do a, a rubbish job. You know, he he knows how to mm. do it, and um, I think the I think the other thing is that we always punched above our weight because if if McLaren had ten dollars to spend on something, we always had three dollars to spend on the same thing. So the three dollars has to be spent properly. So McLaren can spend ten dollars mm. and waste five of them. We yeah. we have to make all three of our dollars count so we you know it was always about being efficient spending money in the right way not spending money on upgrades that don't work uh if at all possible and and just just keeping things simple and i i think perhaps my only it's it's not a huge concern just yet but an observation i would make since the aston martin takeover is they've recruited quite a lot of people um Mm there's a danger the team loses 
what I just mentioned, that it's it starts to, in its rush to become a big team, it loses that agility that a smaller team holds. And I, I think somewhere between the size of Haas and the size mm. of, of Mercedes-Benz, there is a happy medium. And I suspect that's probably where Jost Capito is going to, and, and Zach Brown are ending up with McLaren and Williams, you know, where you employ, I don't know, you, you, you employ six or 700 people instead of a thousand people. And, you know, that's still a massive organization, but it's yeah. somehow, I think, um, Aston just need to not forget what they already know uh, about how to punch above their weight and to, to know how to do, to do that giant killing act because if they try to become a Ferrari well they really shouldn't become a Ferrari because Ferrari hasn't actually been very good for quite a while so <laughs> you know, they've, got to, they've got to be careful you've got to be careful what you wish for well, you could say that about this yeah. year you know they, they maybe flew a little bit too close to the sun of following Mercedes and this year's rules allegedly were targeted at slowing down Mercedes maybe a bit more than others and yeah. as a direct result of yeah. that every week Otmar Zafnauer has complained that they've been targeted this year um, they haven't but it was kind of a I suppose a, a knock on effect of maybe following and trying to maybe trying to what's the word, run before like a walk kind of thing um, yeah yeah, maybe the, it it should have been a case of wait to the new regs before you get to that level, and it it's kind of hurt them this year. Obviously, they couldn't have seen it coming to the level, yeah. but uh, it, it 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 seems to fall in kind of kind of what you're saying that you know they should keep to doing things the way they are, um, and especially with like the the budget cap and stuff like that, they already have the decades long experience of doing things on by Formula One terms a shoestring. And next year, this yeah. year especially, and next year especially with the new regs, it will be a shoestring for everyone, and they should maybe focus on doing that in, uh, well, a Jordan way, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you're not I think you're not wrong at all in what you say, and um, the 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 rule change this year I have found very interesting because if we go back, um, if we go back eight months to kind of Christmas New Year. Everyone was saying, well, the cars aren't really going to change this year. It's going to be more of the same. Mercedes-Benz will win again. It's the last year of the new rules. Of the, sorry, of the existing mm. rules. It's all going to be terribly predictable. And then 12 weeks later, the whole world saying, oh, it's a completely new ball game. You know, we've got, uh, <laughs> got these massive changes. I mean, I mean, honestly, it was just amazing. And then, you know, all the magazines and websites are showing these cuts in the floor and saying this has completely changed the philosophy and it plays mm-hmm. into the hands of the high rate teams like Red Bull and Mercedes are screwed and so is Aston Martin. And you, it, it makes you laugh, doesn't it? Because for all the, the for all the tens of millions being spent, it means that uh, it means that people didn't really understand the consequences of the rules that had been, including mm-hmm. in the teams. And yeah. You know, so I mean, so quite clearly, no one sat down at Aston Martin in November and went, "Oh my God, we've got a problem here." You know, we're really wow. You know, we're we're so they they were they were shocked to discover that actually they weren't that competitive. And of course, that's the problem, isn't it? In Formula One, is that you might know the philosophy of your car, and you might think you therefore know where you stand. But if you don't understand the philosophy of someone else's car, you literally don't know where you are in relation to them until you go out racing. And I think that's one of the benefits of the purity of Formula One. You've got all these bright people and they all think that they're uh, doing an ever so clever job. And then they discover that the team down the road is doing a more clever job and that they've managed to read the rules in a better way and go out and do 
do do a terrific job. And I think you know this year has been so entertaining to see you know Max and Lewis going hell for leather. Great to see what Red Bull have achieved. Amazing to see mm. what Honda have achieved by you know as I said to someone the other week, you know, at least this time, Honda stand a chance of winning the world championship the year before they pull out rather than the year after. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, I mean, there's, there's a book to be written about Honda's decisions to come in and out of formula one, because it's just, you know, they, they, they have the worst crystal ball, whatever crystal ball they've got, they really need to go and get another one because they just seem to get their timing wrong. You know, uh, let's go over to Coops. Coops must have a question for, Mark, uh, what, what, what are you going to ask Mark, Mark today? Well, it's down back to probably looking over your whole career. I'm just curious, you've worked with the likes of Jacques Viola, Mika Hacken and yeah. Coulthard, uh, Michael Schumacher we've touched on. Who was your favourite or or who was what stood out when you met all these different drivers throughout the years in terms of how they drove and yeah. what they were like? It's it's a it's a good it's a good question, Coops, because the the reality is that I met them all at different stages. You know, I met Mika Hakkinen when he was eighteen years of age, racing in Vauxhall Lotus, and <laughs> um, and actually I met David Coulthard about that time as well. So I knew them in Junior Formula. Um, I met Michael when he first drove the Jordan F one car. Um, I actually didn't really get to know Jacques until. He was driving for BAR, and um, I was at Jordan. We had Honda engines. They had Honda engines. We we ended up doing a few events together. So what I will tell you, what I what I would say is that that what they all have in common is a single minded determination to to get to where they're going to get to, and they really, you know, each one of them has had a sort of a laser focus on getting to Formula One, and in that respect. They've all been impressive because they've just done what they had to to get there. However, the other thing that stands out is the degree to which each of them has had people help them at key points during their career. So they haven't done it all on their own, but their single mindedness has impressed people to help them. So they've, you know, Michael benefited from Willie Weber's support. Um, Willie, of course, owned the Formula Three team that Michael drove for. Uh, David Coulthard had support from a couple of very good sponsors from his family. Uh, he had a couple of managers who helped him at different points in his career. Uh, Jacques Villeneuve, of course, had uh, Craig Pollock managing him, uh, helped him to secure big sponsorship to do IndyCar and then make the transition um, across to Formula One with, with Williams. So they've, they've all been very single-minded, but they've also had good people around them, at, at least for a period of time, they've had a really quite a powerful package of people around them in terms of the guys that I, in terms of what do I think of them all, they're actually all quite different because, you know, we all have different personalities and all of these drivers are, are quite, are quite different. There's no doubt that you wouldn't want to play poker with any of them. They, (laughs) they, they, they have a steely determination and it's a real, and it is it is made of steel. There's a very very hard centre to the degree of focus that they bring to their job, and you only have to spend a short amount of time with Jack or with Mika or with DC. Even now, when they're long retired, and they and get them to talk about a particular race or a particular overtake or a particular pole position or 
you know, if you get DC to talk about what it's like to qualify and pole around Monte Carlo, he goes into another zone and he can he can describe the lap. Uh, he can he can describe where he's placing the wheel. He can describe where the front wing's being placed. He you know he's he's going through it all in in detail. Um, Damon Hill, one of the most impressive people that I've worked with, because I didn't rate Damon that highly when he was in Formula Three because he was teammate to Martin Donnelly, who was a good friend of mine, as I said earlier. And Martin was a bit quicker than Damon in Formula Three. Um, and I wasn't sure about Damon, but then he got to Formula One with Brabham. And then I began to realize that here was a guy that was prepared to do anything that he could. To, and he drove a couple of really dreadful cars in lower formula just to keep his career going. And then he got that drive at Williams and then the, and the unthinkable happened. You know, he became test driver, Alain Prost retires and Ayrton Senna loses his life. And suddenly Damon Hill finds himself not only with a race seat, but actually leading the team. And then he goes and wins a world championship and he wins a world championship against Michael Schumacher. And by the way, Damon should really have won two world championships mm-hmm. because Michael did take him out at Adelaide in 1994. Yep. So yep. the reality, you know, and I got to realize that Damon had this phenomenal uh, focus that he brought. I mean, actually borderline anger. It was a kind of a, a, a manifest. He was angry to get the results and he just channeled that so they've all been really impressive in their own way and again probably because i'm getting older and passage of time <laughs> i respect all of them you know i think i think they're all amazing and what they uh, all particularly all these guys we've just mentioned and if you take someone like jack who gets a lot of he gets he gets a lot of uh negative uh coverage on social media because he comes out with some outlandish things and he you know he, he likes being contrary but the yeah. thing to understand about jack is that jack is contrary because he loves being contrary so mm-hmm. if you if you expect jack Villeneuve to say white he's going to say black <laughs> yeah because actually he, <laughs> yep. he he just he wants to you know he wants to see your reaction and what i will tell you is that he's a he's a super guy to work with and if you you know, I did an event with Jacques recently online. We did a Zoom, uh, a Zoom event with a client in Canada, and I got Jacques to talk about turning up at his first race, his first his first Formula One race in Melbourne, and sticking the car in pole position and, and finishing second. And you know, we forget that mm. people forget mm. that. I mean, it, it was astonishing what he did. And then he talked about winning the world championship. And then, of course, his whole career went pear-shaped because he decided, on the advice of his manager, to set up a Formula One team called BAR. And, you know, thing, things went things went downhill. But the fact is that Jack has had an extraordinary career, and that's before you even get him to talk about his dad. And then when you get him to talk about Gilles Villeneuve, then you have another chapter of the Jacques Villeneuve story. And his kind of... The thing that I, I just love is that... Um, on the 25th anniversary of Gilles Villeneuve losing his life, uh, Ferrari phoned Jacques and asked Jacques if he would like to come to Fiorano and drive his dad's car. And he turned up in Fiorano. I mean, and Jacques had no relationship with Ferrari, never driven for Ferrari, obviously. Um, Quite the opposite, they'd been competitors. But he turned up in Fiorano and not only did they have his dad's car there, but it had the actual steering wheel that his dad had used. And then one of the mechanics came over with can't remember if it was the gloves or the seat it might have been the seat that his dad had used and Jacques then went and drove around Fiorano in Gilles uh, Gilles car and I can tell you that when he shares that story 
there is no there's there's no arrogance there's no hubris he's telling it with humility and with passion and with a degree of emotion because he realized yeah. you know the circle of life that there has been in the Villeneuve family so I, I look at all of these guys and I admire what they've uh, admire what they've achieved and every single one of them contributes to the story of Formula One Absolutely. You've got to have some kind of something wrong with you mentally if you want to drive one of the cars <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, at, those, at those speeds on those tracks. Uh, Sean, have you got another question for Mark today? I'd love to get your thoughts on, obviously, you know, that this happens a lot every few years is that, you know, there, there's a, a big kind of upheaval change in the regulations of Formula One. Um, this happens every couple of years. Um <laughs> Yeah. Usually, usually in recent ter- times, with the goal of slowing the cars down. Obviously, 08 to 09 was an especially dramatic version of that. But from time to time, they happen yeah. with the goal of speeding the cars up. 2017, the lower, wider cars. Yeah. The goal was literally to speed them up. Um, what do you think of the new regulations for what was supposed to be this year for 2022? Um, do Do you think it will have the desired effect to, uh, from like your own experience with Formula One? Um, and obviously, you you were yeah. kind of around the sport in the eighties when you know ground effect aerodynamics were still a bit more of a thing. Um, is it really going to make that much of a difference? Do you think to the to the quality of racing, or will it kind of be another twenty seventeen where it kind of it looks great on paper, but it doesn't really lead to all that much? Well, the only thing I know is that I've never seen a set of regulations that call that has caused a group of engineers to sit down and figure out. Uh, how do they slow the car down? You know, I mean, none of them ever want to slow the car down. They only want to make it go faster. And and when the regulations come out, it's it's important to remember that. So the media go away and they get all of these graphics done saying, "Ah, oh, this is what the new cars are going to look like." That's because they've read the regulations for what they do say. People like Adrian Newey read the regulations for what they don't say, mm-hmm. and it's the loopholes and it's the opportunity to explore the opportunity that is afforded. Now, what is quite different this time is that Ross Braun and Pat Simmons and the technical guys working in Formula One have got quite a lot of experience and have applied their know-how and their research to creating a set of rules which will undoubtedly achieve some of what they're set out to. So I think there's no doubt that because of the aerodynamic configuration of these cars, it, it should be easier to follow and therefore it should be easier to overtake in theory um that is of course if you believe that overtaking is 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 the thing that we always need um and you know i think the we can argue that point you know uh, if you want but the reality <laughs> is that um you know they've got this uh, philosophy around this car which they're pretty confident uh about there will be a group of engineers out there and i i don't know which team they'll be in but probably in the larger teams because they have the most people and the most research and development dollars and they'll have been scrutinizing this to the nth degree. There will be a group of people out there who will be seeking to do the opposite of what it is that Ross Braun and the regulator wants to achieve. They will want to steal a competitive advantage and therefore I'm I'm pretty confident that we will see some improvement in terms of the equality across the field however i also think that there will still be a clear advantage for 
the top two or top three teams just because that's always the case because they they have the brightest engineers they've had the biggest budgets historically which means they have the best facilities which means they have the best software and simulation and rigs and you know you name it they're all just a little bit better in 10 or 15 different areas and when you add all of that together it gives them a competitive advantage so i'm not expecting to turn up in melbourne next year and and discover uh, Antonio Antonio Giovinazzi on pole position, mm-hmm. or to to discover that you know um, Haas are are going to be world champions in the next three years. I think the the fact of the matter is that the the field should benefit both from the technical regulations, but also from the budget cap. And I think the budget cap is a really significant change. In, in fact, from my perspective, everything is much more about what's happening with the amount of money you have to spend than specifically the regulations because it means that no one can go crazy in terms of what they spend uh, on the cars so i think when you put it all together i'm pretty optimistic that ross will have achieved quite a lot of what they he set out to achieve but there's no getting away from the fact that adrian newey and james allison and and um the guys at ferrari are they're not looking to follow the leader. They're all looking to mm. find a competitive advantage. So I think that's that's what we'll see. A final a final sort of thing to share with you, just from my own experience. I spent two years in FIA meetings in Paris about the hybrid engine formula and de- deciding that that those hybrid engine regulations and the what one of the number one priorities for the hybrid engine formula being introduced in twenty fourteen mm. was that no team should run away with the ball. And everybody used to sit around the table in Paris going, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really important. Really, really important. We all, we all, we all have to have exactly the same amount of horsepower and uh, no, one should, no one should just steam off into the distance and, and win the World Championship and leave everyone behind. So here we are in 2021. <laughs> no one else, no one else has won the championship since. Um, and and this is this is what can happen. Now I do think that the maturity of those regulations was nowhere compared to the maturity of the regulations that are coming into mm. 2022. So I think the sport has done a lot of growing up mm. in the last ten years, and I do think that um, with the Ecclestone era coming to an end, Liberty and the FIA have formed a much more generous collegiate partnership in terms of how they run the sport from a a regulatory and a commercial perspective. And I think we're really benefiting from that. So, so let's just hope, you know, it'll be closer. um, And uh, maybe uh, Coops, you'll get your hopes of a McLaren victory before too long. Let's let's hope so. (laughs) Um, about Bernie Eccleston I wanted to speak to you about him you you must have had run-ins with him in the years uh, either from the journalistic Jesus you don't have (laughs) run-ins with Bernie if you have a run-in with Bernie you don't survive it so (laughs) I'm still here Um, I I I would love to tell you that I negotiated against him and got one over on him and that Never. I used to sit in his office and say, yes, Mr. Eccleston, whatever you would like, please, yes, no problem. Um, but, you know, he was, uh, yeah, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's an extraordinary guy and he did an amazing job. For, he was a formidable character. Well, he is still a formidable character, just not necessarily on the grid anymore. Um, still, obviously, he's, 
Yeah, I mean he the th- the guy, I mean the guy's a legend, and although he over although he stayed on too long, he, he yeah. argu- arguably should have stopped about ten years, uh, you know, earlier. Um, he loved he loved what he did, and and he was given a job by CVC Capital of staying on as chief executive. But um, I'll tell you a slightly horrifying story about Bernie, and it actually happened in nineteen ninety one when I was at, at Jordan. Um, we. Um, I was at the Brazilian Grand Prix and I got a letter, an envelope appeared on my desk and it said, mm. um, when I opened it, it said, you're invited to dinner with Mr. Eccleston. Mm. And I thought, oh, Bernie's having a press dinner tonight, so I'll go along to that. You know, there'll be 300 people there and you know, obviously he's going to give a speech and whatever. So anyway, I went along to this restaurant and I came in and I said, I'm, I'm here for the Eccleston function. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and they said... Uh, Oh right, you know, follow us here, and they, they they came in, and there was a table for four, and there were two other journalists. There was uh, Anne Giantini from L'Equipe in France, and there was Gerhard, I think it was Gerhard Kunschuk from uh, Salzburg, uh, Nachrichten in Austria, and the three of us sat down, and there was one other chair, and we're looking at each other, going, "Did did you get an envelope inviting you to dinner with Bernie?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, he walks in and he sits down, and uh, he says, uh, "Well." so glad you were all able to join me and we're like our mouths are on the table we're like what the hell is going on you know and he says um, he said the thing is all three of you have written a story about me in the last six months which I find very interesting because you don't actually know me and I don't really know how you can write about me when you haven't actually bothered to pick the phone up and have a chat so I thought we'd have dinner and then you can ask me anything you want and then that, that way the next time you write about me you can write about me from a position of knowledge rather than, than ignorance. Wow. And wow. It, wow. it was like, it was the nicest bollocking I've ever had, basically. <laughs> 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 you know? And, and then he was like, and then the next thing he said was devastating because he said, you can ask me any question you want over the next, he said, actually, there's no time limit. Four hours, five over five hours. He said, you can ask me any question you want but you can never write about it until I die, okay? And Ooh. we were like, okay. So the thing is, in 1991, we all figured, you know, he'll be gone in 15 years. <laughs> and, and, and we're still waiting, you know? And actually, there's a pretty good chance he might outlive all of us because he's got so much money, he's got a cryogenic chamber somewhere in Geneva or somewhere that's going to keep him going, you know? But um, anyway, we, we had a fabulous evening and he was highly entertaining, very amusing and, um, yeah, quite a legend. Uh, but interviewing him... W- w- after that date, was he still his very steely kind of monosyllabic kind of one word answer to your question? Or yeah, had but... you kind of formed a relationship after that? The, the, the problem is that after that, I really stopped being a journalist. You know, I was, I was migrating across into team management. And so I then really dealt with him through Jordan um, days. And, um, and then when I was at Red Bull, uh, did a couple of things with him. And then... Um, kind of a bizarre experience I had was I was employed by Disney Pixar as a consultant on Cars, the the movie, and um, we did a deal between Disney Pixar and Formula One, and that involved me taking some Disney Pixar executives down to 
Bernie's office and we negotiated a deal with him. And that was just hilarious because I knew Bernie and the Disney Pixar people only knew him by reputation. So they were terrified and they were like, you know, my God, this guy's going to be a complete nightmare. So the Disney Pixar people all turned up with lawyers and intellectual property people. And, you know, there was a whole bunch of them. There was just like a whole posse of, of, of executives. And Bernie comes into the meeting on his own. And the Americans are all like, where's your lawyer? And he said, well... <laughs> He said, I'll only bring my lawyer if you upset me. So <laughs> let's just, you know, let's just have a meeting. And we did a deal in 25 minutes. And I think the Amer- Americans said to me afterwards, you know, that's the kind of deal normally we'd take months to put in place. But in 25 minutes, Bernie understood the opportunity, massive opportunity to get Cars, the movie, launched at the Spanish Grand Prix. We got Michael Schumacher to do a voiceover. Um, in in that film, uh, Owen Wilson and Paul Newman agreed to get involved. They were the, obviously the voiceovers, so they got involved in uh, the launch at the at the Grand Prix and all the rest of it. So you know, working with Bernie over the years on things like that, you realise that he was very good at understanding the value in things, and he cut straight to the chase, um, and that was very impressive. And uh, yeah, you know, it's. Uh, unquestionable that he built Formula One into the sport that it is today. He didn't get everything right, but at least he made a decision each time. Um, And, you know, when I was watching the race on Sunday, just to bring us back to Belgian Grand Prix, um, I was reflecting on Sunday the whole way I was watching it. I was thinking, what would have happened if Bernie was still running F1 and if Charlie Whiting was the race director? And... I think there probably would have been a bigger push to run the cars behind the safety car for more laps. Um, I think that that's the kind of thing that Ber- you know I could imagine Bernie putting a call in to Charlie and saying, "Keep keep going behind the safety car, even if you end up doing it for twenty laps behind the safety car. At least that way we you know we give ourselves a chance." I think things would have been slightly different. So we 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 definitely have moved into a new era, and I think Liberty. I think Liberty and I think the FIA are probably a little bit more risk averse than than Bernie was. Um, and that's a good thing because, um, again, the other thing that I was reflecting at on Sunday was that we had a very uncomfortable weekend in Suzuka in 2014 and um, we lost Jules Bianchi um, because he, his car aquaplaned off on the same stream of water that Adrian Sutil's car had gone off the lap before. And... It it really does need everyone when they talk about Belgium, twenty twenty one to, to step back and look at the big picture. We've had some pretty horrific experiences in the past, and I think the people at the top of Formula One have learned from that. Let, let, I want to talk about the cars. That cars, well, not necessarily the cars <laughs> situation, because we did have that in our notes actually, um, to talk about that. Um, yeah. you, you've been afforded all these experiences in your lifetime uh, yeah. because because of formula 1 you know you've you've worked for jordan you've worked for yeah. you've worked for obviously the teams that led up to the uh, red bull um, yeah. and you've done the cars you've you've consulted on hollywood films <laughs> you're like a superstar uh, down the grid so are there any are there any were there any people that you were kind of intimidated yourself by uh, on the grid or, or were you were you always kind of like the the the, the person to talk to uh, uh, down there kind of always calm interviewed or ever, any other people you met oh my god yeah yeah god I was intimidated by them all I mean you know there's have any of you ever watched Team America yes yes yeah. okay so you know there's three types of people 
Do you know that line? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, it's been a few years. Yeah. Okay. So that you know, so that's Formula One. So they're all quite intimidating. You know, there's um, uh, lots of uh, lots of uh, interesting characters. Um, I mean, I've been involved in the sport a long time, but I never got used to the fact that I was working with these superstars. I mean, I mean, it's been a privilege to work in the paddock, but doesn't matter what age you are, if you meet Alain Prost or you meet Ayrton Senna or you meet Ron Dennis or you meet Frank Williams, you know you're in the presence of a complete icon. I mean, Jack, Jackie Stewart. I mean, I remember the, the first time I ever met Jackie Stewart, he shouted at me because I was upsetting him over a particular thing that was going on oh, at the time. And I, I was really quite distressed about the fact that I had met my hero and he had his finger in my chest telling me what an idiot I was. So that was uh, <laughs> that was really a bit, a bit unfortunate. But anyway, we got over that and uh, he, he won't remember that. And, um, you know, I got to know his sons, Paul and, and Mark, a little bit. And Jackie is just a top guy. And But yes, I mean, lots of intimidating people around. Flavio Briatore, pretty, pretty terrifying guy. Um, yeah. As an example, um, I mean, a, quite a, quite a, quite a personality in every way, shape, or form. <laughs> um, and you know, it's interesting um, when I look back. Uh, certainly on, on some of these these amazing people that you you come into contact with. Um, I very briefly will just tell you that when I was at Colesworth, um, we were supplying engines to Williams, and we. We actually had an opportunity to supply engines to Red Bull because even back in 2010, Red Bull's relationship with Renault was not particularly fantastic. And Adrian Adrian Newey was very keen on having an engine partner that that he felt more comfortable working with. And we were very keen to work with Red Bull. So we, we got that conversation going. And uh, as I say, we were supplying engines to Williams. So... Um, we I had a phone call one day in my office and this it was Frank Williams' secretary and she said, uh, Mr. Gallagher, Frank, we'd like to have a meeting with you. And I said, yeah, sure, no problem. You know, I'll, I'll come over to Williams. Uh, you know, what day would you like to do it? And she said, well, he'd like to have a meeting with you today. And I said, okay, well, that's fine. I'll, I'll come over today. And she said, no, no, he, you're not coming here. He's coming to you. <laughs> and Uh-oh. I mean, obviously, Frank's a quadriplegic and it takes... Mm. hours for him to get ready in the morning and you know to travel from the the factory at Grove all the way over to Cosworth in Northampton I mean mm. it's not the work of a moment so now I'm thinking wow I mean Frank's Frank's coming to see me and you know what the heck's going on so I said to her um, I said well <laughs> what does he want to do and she said well he'd just like to have a look at the factory and and have a meeting with you so of course I put word around the factory, so everyone started brushing their hair and tucking their shirts in and brushing the floor and tidying the place up. Frank turns up in uh, the factory, and we he have we have a tour, he has a tour around. Um, and <laughs> we we go into the boardroom to have this meeting, and what I didn't really fully understand is that over the years, obviously his wheelchair has developed quite significantly in terms of its technology, and. Mm. Frank has to stand up every 20 minutes to 30 minutes for for circulatory reasons and in right, the okay. in, in the old days his nurse would help him out of the wheelchair into a frame a standing frame what i didn't realize is that things had rather moved on so all of a sudden frank presses a button and the wheelchair stands up on these hydraulic you know <laughs> And it's like Darth Vader, basically. It's like Darth Vader coming up from the end of, of your table. And 
and I'm, I'm sitting there watching Frank Williams sort of looming over me, and and he proceeds to say to me, you know, I, I hear you're thinking of supplying engines to our rivals at Red Bull, and I would really prefer that you didn't do that. And um, <laughs> and it was just... It was what a just power a, move. Yeah, you know, it was... It, anyway, that's a kind of typical moment where you're dealing with these giants, and you're not going to say to Frank Williams... I'm sorry, Frank. I'm you know not gonna. I'm not gonna listen to what you have to say. You're going to you're going to pay attention, aren't you? Because you you want mm. to help Frank to be successful. And um, you know, I, I look back on that as a kind of an an example of a moment where you're in the presence of someone who's a real icon of the sport. The sad fact was that he was wrong to to, to be saying what he did because, in truth, if the deal with Red Bull had happened we were going to have quite a significant budget improvement, which would have actually enabled Colesworth to to produce uh, even better ver- versions of the current engine. So although there was an engine freeze, mm. um, when you have an engine freeze, there are still lots of things that you can do in terms of fuel and lubricants testing, and you can do lots of things in terms of exhaust system testing. And there was, there was lots of things that we would have done. So actually, I would argue it would have been actually beneficial to Williams if we had ended up working with Red Bull but anyway it didn't work out in the end uh, it was vetoed by uh, my dear friend Dr. Marco and um, they ended yeah. up going and winning four world championships with, with Renault but uh, Renault, yeah, yeah that was it ah uh. But yeah, yeah, see these these are the stories we want to hear. These are the, it's great it's great to hear the 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 the, the, the real life goings on. Yeah, it's the, you know what? It's not that magic. You know, you, you kind of everybody in Formula One they're normal people. Um, and I mean, most of I mean, I think one of the great things about the Netflix Drive to Survive series, which you know your girlfriend Sean, you know she she's fallen in love with it because there's a narrative about normal people trying to do something that's abnormal and mm. it's normal people it's trying very to much do a something. character study it's absolutely and in that regard i think bernie and his people did a did the sport a disservice because too much of the television coverage and the media coverage during the bernie era was about the top two teams and i think what's so clever about drive to survive is that the first year they did it ferrari and mercedes didn't want to collaborate with them so they ended up focusing on all the other teams. Turned out to be the best thing that's ever happened to Formula One because suddenly, instead of people saying to Haas, why are you bothering? People are now saying to Haas, I think you guys are amazing. And, you know, mm. Gunther Steiner is such a personality. And um, so, you know, one of the questions I would have had from lots of people over the years is why do the small teams bother turning up? Because they can never win a race. But now that people have seen Drive to Survive, they realise that there's actually an inherent satisfaction from being part of the circus and competing in it and even if your objective this weekend is to finish ninth and tenth and score three points or or just to have both cars finish the race to show that you've improved your reliability problem that's still an objective for you to to pursue so i think you know the whether you win lose or draw whether you're at in a top team or team at the back of the grid you know you're part of something pretty special and you recognise that you've got this privileged opportunity to compete in, you know, the pinnacle of world motorsport, and there is nothing, there is nothing, quite as extreme as as Formula One. Um, you know, for World Rally Championship, I still think is is an is a stunning piece of of motorsport. I, I, I love rallying still, but 
the 10 teams and the 20 drivers in Formula One are all operating at an incredibly relentless pace across the whole World Championship season. And it's, uh, I think it's formidable. Uh, so, Coops, have you got a question for Mark? Yeah, just curiously, you've worked with a lot of people over the years, especially drivers. I'm just curious, is there anybody you've met that you thought, wow, it's the next best thing, and for whatever reason, it, they just didn't get to where you thought they would get to, maybe as a driver? Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no doubt. There's, there's, there, there's a lot of wreckage out there. I think we know that. There's a lot of wreckage, uh, lot, a lot of broken dreams. Um, you know, we talked about mm-hmm. the, the laser focus that a lot of drivers have. Some drivers never realise the point at which the dream has ended. And um, mm. it's that can be a bit sad to, to witness. Um, I think that, you know, if you look at the driver, I mean, if you look at drivers that I got to know for example in the late 80s who went on to have quite good careers in in formula one but didn't really achieve their potential so someone like jonah lacy who was mm-hmm. a very exciting driver in junior formula and he drove for us in f3000 and he was um, he was a fa- fabulous um but his head his head needed to be in the right space and and therefore in some ways, it wasn't it wasn't a surprise it didn't work out at Ferrari because to sorry there's a bit of motorcycle going past there. Um, there's uh you know Ferrari didn't work out for him because yeah Jean needed a particular type of cultivating to get the best out of him. Mm-hmm. So he was a driver who showed brilliantly in the Tyrrell, but didn't show brilliantly, you know at at, at Benetton Ferrari. He just won one Grand Prix. Um, then you have the tragic stories like Ivan Capelli, who won the Air 3000 Championship uh, the first year that I went freelance. And I had no doubt that Ivan Capelli was going to be world champion. Um, he was just a formidable driver in the junior formula. And Ferrari broke him. And if you've listened to, if you, if you get the chance, listen to him on the official Formula One podcast um, um, uh, talk about why his career went pear-shaped and you know he drove for late in the house march and then got into ferrari and it was disgraceful what happened to him there and the way he was treated so we've you know i've seen a number of examples of things go wrong and then you then you look at other tragedies more recent tragedies tragedies like robert kubica who to my mind was one of the greatest drivers of the first decade of of this century you know between the 2000s he was a coming man he won that Canadian Grand Prix in 2008 and I have no doubt that he would have gone on to great things um, and then just made this made this decision to get involved in another form of motorsport that is inherently more dangerous rallying and suffer the consequences of, of that accident it, it, it ruined his uh, ruined his chances and you know I look at Robert and I think gosh you know there there's one who really got away and it's a shame because yeah. not only was he a great talent but for a short period of time he brought great joy to all the Polish fans who would come to Formula One uh, races so yeah there's been and then there, and then I mean quite frankly once you step outside of Formula One there are literally dozens of drivers who could have made it, should have made it, I wish had made it. Um, you know, I think Dario Franchitti would have been a formidable Formula One driver if someone had given him the right no. opportunity. He ended up going on off and 
and winning in Indy and, and the Indy IndyCar Championship. And there are, you know, there are other drivers like like him, formidable drivers. I think Alan McNish would have been a formidable Formula One driver if McLaren and Honda had given him the opportunity when he was a test driver right back at the at the beginning. Uh, he, his career just took a different turn. He ended up going off and doing sports car racing. And by the time he got back into Formula One, it was a little bit late and and he, he it just wasn't the right timing for him. And of course, Toyota wasn't ultimately the right team. So yeah, there've been lots of drivers over the years. And I think, you know, the when I look at young drivers now, the thing which frustrates me so much is is how many of them at a very young age think they know everything about their career they think they they mm. for example you see so many drivers on social media who are racing in gp uh, in, in formula 3 or f2 and they think they've arrived you you haven't arrived i mean you you're not even yeah. in the car park you know you haven't arrived yet and um and actually even when you get into formula 1 you still haven't arrived because a lot of drivers don't stay in formula 1 for more than one or two years so you've got to you've really got to work hard and learn, keep learning, keep learning, keep learning. And again, going back to Coops to your question earlier on about, you know, working with drivers like Mika and Jack and, uh, and and DC. So one of the things that you you learn very quickly with working with DC and and Mika is the inherent curiosity they have to keep on learning, and they're still doing it in their fifties. And they, as drivers, you know, when Mika got into Formula One with Team Lotus, he realised the car was rubbish. So he just thought, well, you know, I'll just do the best job I can. And so he focused on learning as much as he could about that car, that team, how to be competitive. And then he got the opportunity to go to McLaren. And from arriving in Formula One to winning his first Grand Prix was seven years. I mean, he spent seven years learning before he made his breakthrough. And then, you know, he won two world championships. So you talk to Mika and the, the journey would the journey was not meteoric like Jacques Villeneuve. The journey was pretty slow trajectory. Similarly with David Coulthard, you know, he he will tell you, you know, he arrived he got to the top of Formula One, he's driving for a McLaren Mercedes and he wakes up one morning and realizes I've got a teammate who's quicker than me and we've got an arch <laughs> rival who's possibly quicker than both of us. So having having achieved his dream he knows that Mika Hakkinen is probably going to out qualify him you know and therefore get the preferred race strategy and therefore probably win more races and by the way DC also realised that Mika was Ron Dennis's favourite child basically so so he was so so all drivers at all stage have to be have to recognise their place in the world and work bloody hard to make sure that they you know that they make all of that work, and um, and I think this is you know so I, su- I suppose what I'm saying in a long-winded way is that that you know when I look at young drivers today, they they really need to go out and get as much good advice as possible. Have a great group of people around them helping them. That doesn't mean surrounding yourself with sycophants who tell you how amazing you are, because actually it's much better to be surrounded by people who say you know what you don't know everything. You got to keep on working. You got to go down mm-hmm. the gym, work that bit harder. Um, you actually need the truth uh, being told to you. And, you know, again, David Coulthard is very good on this topic because his manager was Martin Brundle. And, I mean, he tells some very good stories about Martin Brundle calling him up and saying, DC, don't believe your own PR. Um, 
things are not as good as you think they are, you know, you might be in trouble. So we need to look at career opportunities and and all of that. And when DC left McLaren, I and mean, he was unemployed, and he he literally wrote to every Formula One team, uh, begging for test drives and and looking for opportunities, and ended up going to Red Bull. And what a great turn of events that was. But when you hear DC relate the story, you realise that even as a McLaren driver with uh, 13 Grand Prix victories behind him, uh, he didn't have a secure future. So he had to work extremely hard for it. So I think, you know, up and down the paddock, there's always the sad stories of drivers who nearly made it and, and, and didn't. And it, it, it comes down to having that belief in yourself, but also getting the right group of people around you to help you to achieve your your um, your passion. Good advice. Yeah. Good advice. Uh, where is uh, Mark Gallagher going to be in the future of F1? Are you going <laughs> to go back into some other role? Are you going to try some another team? Are you going to? Uh, well, what I, are you going to do? No, I. Or you finished. Yeah. To be honest with you, um, when I left when I left Colesworth um, in uh, two thousand end of two thousand eleven, beginning of two thousand twelve, um, I I'd had a couple of disappointing experiences. I had a. Um, I had a big frustration at the end of my time at Cosworth and uh, I loved working with the people there and I love the company and I think it's one of the sad twists of Formula One history that Cosworth are no longer involved in the sport because I do believe the sport would benefit from having an independent engine uh, manufacturer so that when a company like Red Bull gets in a situation where Honda pulls out they would have a, an engine supplier that they could easily turn to and I think if it was do- I think these days with Liberty being involved I think that an independent supplier could be a real str- could be a real ace card up the sleeve of of Liberty to ensure that whatever happens in the automotive industry in the future Formula One's always going to have an engine uh, supplier but when I left Cosworth, I made a very conscious decision that I would not go back and work for a team, uh, that I would not look for a job in Formula One, that I would do my own thing. And and that's what I've done ever since. So, uh, you know, it's now 10 years and no no days, no two days are the same. Um, you know, I've got this this autumn, I've got events with Jacques Villeneuve I've got events with, with Mika Hakkinen I've got events with uh, David Coulthard I had a I've got a, had a client came to me today about uh, an event with uh, for, it'll be for you know Lewis or Max um, and I'm doing quite a lot of work back in the media again which I'm enjoying and of course I miss being at the sharp end and I would love there are certain things I would love to do if I was given the opportunity but Actually, you you have to recognize, as just as I said about a driver, drivers have to realize their place in the world. Someone like me, you know, I, I realize I've been in the industry a long time. I've got plenty more I could give, but actually, I really love what I do now, and I have an ex- extremely um, extremely rewarding work. I uh, get a lot of fun out of it. Not a lot of stress involved in what I do now, whereas there is a lot of stress working in at the sharp end of Formula One. And I think that, um, therefore, what I would love to to continue doing is simply being on the fringes of the sport I love, uh, working with drivers and helping drivers to maximise their their commercial opportunity. You know, we do we get involved in some fantastic events. And last year I did an event with Lewis uh, in Singapore. And 
I was sitting there with him on stage, you know, and I was thinking, you know, I'm sitting here with a seven times world champion um, and, um, or soon to be seven times world champion. I've worked with the other seven times world champion. Um, you know, I've met Ayrton, who was Lewis's hero. And so again, again, I kind of take a, I take a step back and I look at the big picture and I feel very privileged to still be involved in, in what I do. I think the, um, the thing that really excites me uh, now is watching how the, the ebb and flow of the teams uh, in terms of their performance and their development works. And and I suppose I miss playing a role in, in some of that. So, for example, I knew when Jost Capito came into Williams and Doralton bought the team, that's going to be a success story. And... I, I so hope that I'm still able to go to the old Grand Prix over the next few years when Williams return to the winner's circle because I'm I'm absolutely certain that that will happen over the course of the next five years. That we will see Williams come back in exactly the same way that we've seen McLaren come yeah. we've seen McLaren come back. And I think that, you know, Coops, as you would appreciate, Mc, McLaren went on a downward cycle and they, yeah. they every time it got worse, they they still hadn't gone as far down as they needed to go. And it wasn't until they hit rock bottom, absolutely were in a really bad place, losing sponsors, uncompetitive, bad relationship with Honda, all kinds of just, you know, let's say bad relationship from a competitive perspective, bad relationship with Honda. Um, and then you have the change. You know, you have that kind of that moment of realisation Actually, if we keep on repeating the same pattern, we're just going to keep on getting worse. So we need to shake things up. And I have to say the shareholders there and Zach Brown did an amazing thing bringing in Andrea Seidel. And you see the mm-hmm. shift. Uh, different leader, different culture, different focus. All of a sudden, the same group of people in the same factory start producing a competitive car. And, of course, I've seen that before at at Red Bull because when you know Red Bull bought Jaguar, they basically... You know, bought this this team that was uh, unable to produce a car that would even finish races, never mind win races, and yet that factory and those people within a couple of years were getting podiums, and then you know five years later won a world championship. So I love watching that, and I I suppose that's the one little bit that sometimes niggles me. I would love to play a role in helping a team that that's currently down find a way mm. find a way back up. Um, you know, I look at Alfa Romeo and Sauber, and I, I'm sure, uh, you know, Frederick Vasseur is so frustrated because Frederick is so competitive and was so competitive in junior formula. And, you know, they kind of stagnate, don't they? That that team has kind of stagnated at that level. So there are, there are teams on the way up in Formula One, like McLaren and Williams. There are teams in Formula One that have the potential to be great. The question is... Can they do the things needed to make that final step forward? Like Alpine is a good example. So, you know, the victory in Hungary in some ways is the worst thing that could have happened to Alpine because it gives everyone the false sense that somehow, you know, they're making the breakthrough. Um, mm. That was a one-off race. You know, Jensen Button won the Hungarian yep. Grand Prix for Honda. It was an outlier. It did. It didn't. Didn't mean that Honda was going to become world champion so you get these odd events you know Olivier Panis winning Monaco for Ligier back in 1997 you know it doesn't mean anything it's just a one-off race uh, victory so you know so there's teams on the way up teams stagnating 
some teams struggling. Haas have clearly got some big decisions to make. I personally think it would be amazing if the Andretti uh, uh, motorsport dynasty were to buy buy the Haas team or buy into the Haas team because I think that what uh, Gene Haas has done is, has been amazing. Um, but mm. I would just love to see the American team become even more American and I'd love to see an American driver and I would love to see that team move into the uh, a preeminent position in Formula One rather than being um, a team that's operating to a business model that means that they will almost never, you know, reach reach the top of the sport. But I've been watching IndyCar this year and I think there's been a lot of conversations about Colton Herta uh, yeah. coming through to Formula yeah. One. He's looking like something and as you say, if Andretti can make that step, yeah. uh, I think he would be a very interesting candidate to come into Formula One. He's a, yeah. a very good driver. I mean, can you imagine, you know, if you could get, if, if Netflix can make Formula One popular in the United States just by making a documentary about it, can you imagine if season, I don't know, five or six featured a, an American driver coming in? It'd be a great story. So, you know, I would like, and I think for Liberty, you know, given that we've now got the Miami Grand Prix, uh, albeit run by an Irishman, uh, Richard Cregan, and uh, <laughs> you know it's going to be great. So you know I, I'm a big believer that you know part of the future of Formula One is having more drivers from more more nationalities. So although it's great that we have yep. an embarrassment of riches in the in in the UK in terms of British drivers, I would like to see more drivers from more nationalities come into the sport because I think it broadens the appeal and. Uh, you know that with us having so many more races, I would like to see more nationalities of drivers. Um, I don't think we're going to see more teams come in because I don't think that's a particular focus for Liberty in terms, in terms of the development of F one. Not not just yet, but um, what it would be great would be to see the caliber of all the drivers move up a level and um, ultimately to move away from. I mean, really we should get to a point again where we don't have any paid drivers if we can get there. Well, let's talk about your career in uh, motorsport itself. Uh, did you, was it the inspiration uh, of Eddie Jordan creating his own team that made <laughs> you create your own team uh, and, 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 and which culminated in that A1GP championship that you won? Yeah, that was a little bit of a personal thing. I... Um, had come. What had happened was Red Bull had moved their Red Bull Racing had moved their commercial operations to Salzburg in Austria, and right. Um, I had uh, had one of those short meetings that you have with your boss once in a while. I had a short meeting with Christian Horner, at which I realised um, my future in the team probably wasn't going to last much longer, and um, <laughs> it was it was actually very it was a very funny meeting and. Uh, um, I think having worked with Eddie for such a long time, I kind of, I realized the writing was slightly on the wall. So I sort of cut straight to mm. the chase and said to Christian, shall I make other plans for the future? <laughs> and that was, he was like, he was like super relieved, you know, he was like, yes, you know, so, but anyway, um, when I left Red Bull, I realized A1GP was coming along and mm. I was introduced to an Irish businessman, Mark Hershaw, and Mark was really keen uh, to get involved in racing. And it had been a little bit of a niggle of mine that I've worked on the commercial side of the sport, um, but I hadn't worked on the operational side and mm. so the technical. So I'm not an engineer. And I thought this is a good opportunity. You know, we could 
would go out and find a team and put a team together and, and create something. And okay, it's not Formula One, but you know, it's A1 GP, it's a, an international series, quite big, fast cars. So that's mm-hmm. what we did. So we started the team and um, uh, Mark and basically Mark put in the money and I went out and started recruiting people and we put uh, an ex-Jordan driver, Ralph Furman, in the car for the first season. And, uh, and so... so we began that journey and what I would say is that it is unquestionably the toughest thing I've ever done um, it taught me a lot about people um, because mm. when you own a team you meet good people and you meet less good people and you meet the odd sort of negative person you come up against all kinds of challenging situations you know uh mm. To sit in a meeting and tell a driver that they're not going to drive the car anymore because they're not, I mean, quite frankly, they're not up to the job is mm. something I'd never had to do. It was the kind of thing that Eddie had to do before. Um, and, you know, to employ engineers and then to maybe sack an engineer, uh, not because they're a bad person, but because the team is just not competitive. So we, so we, we learned a lot. And I very often characterize those four years in A1GP that... We spent two years doing pretty well everything wrong, and then we learned from that, <laughs> and then we spent the next two years doing pretty well everything right, and then we mm. and then we won the and then we won the championship, and then we went into GP three, and uh, we I mean there were forty six teams applied for GP three, only ten teams got into GP three, so we were one of the ten that got into to GP three, and again my relationship with Bernie Eccleston. Uh, helped and also Eddie Jordan helped me at the time so we got into GP3 we also yeah. we also did Le Mans um, on four occasions so we ran two uh, we, we ran a GT1 Aston Martin at Le Mans we finished ninth um, we ran LMP2 cars at Le Mans um, and because of my because of setting up the team and doing all of that I then got mm. approached by Colesworth and they said you know you obviously you're good on the operational side so one thing led to another so because I'd because I jumped into running a team, it led to the opportunity uh, at uh, at Cosworth. So it achieved its purpose, and I learned a great deal, uh, a, a great deal more about racing. I also learned a great deal about myself, including what I'm good at and also what I'm not good at. And so mm. it was a really good growth experience. And I, I think you know that. There are lots of people in there's lots of people I know in Formula One who have done exactly the same job for forty years, uh, journalists, uh, engineers, mechanics, factory staff. You know they've done they've spent decades doing the same job. That was never what I wanted to do. I I love the sport so much that I wanted to, I wanted to do try as many different aspects as possible. You know I wanted to work on the commercial side. I wanted to work on the operational side. I wanted to. You know, experience working with the FIA on the regulatory side. I've done that. I wanted to work, have you know, get involved in deals with with Formula One, with Bernie. I've done that. So yes, I've had ended up with quite a broad, broad career experience, um, and I've I've really enjoyed all of it. But as I say, it's taught me what I, what what where my strengths are, and there's no question that my strengths lie in, in much more in the commercial uh, side, sort of pulling pulling together deals. Uh, seeing opportunities, working with people, and I've I loved that. So that's that's the bit that I probably miss uh, a little bit with what I do now. But what's different mm. now is that although I'm not working in a team, you know, to 
instead of putting together a deal for a team, I'm putting together a deal for a driver. And, um, you know, that's exciting uh, because you're still mm. you're still working out how much the sponsor's going to pay, what the driver gets out of it, how the deal's going to work, all that kind of stuff. And I, I still love all of that. So it's a, um, yeah, working in the team environment definitely was something that I enjoyed doing. But setting up setting up my team and, and status Grand Prix in the end, had a 10-year career, so from when we set it up in 20, 2005 through to when Teddy Yip, so Teddy Yip replaced Mark Kershaw as uh, my fellow shareholder in the team, and mm. um, and then ultimately we sold the, well, ultimately Teddy sold the, what was then, by then a GP2 stroke Formula 2 team was sold to Prima. Uh, Prima Racing, so that was the end of that um, sort of phase. But yeah, it was it was exciting, but yeah, demanding. <laughs> it sounds it, but it, uh, ultimately, you you won that championship, and that's something you can always you, you know with your own team. Yeah, it, there's there's not there's oh. not many people that get get that sort of experience. A one Team Ireland is the last international motor racing team to win a world championship with a Ferrari engine, including Scuderia Ferrari. So. Put that in your cap. I'm going to get that, that printed on my wall. Yeah, exactly. So you know, that, that's kind of my. That, if I ever meet, run into Mattia Bonotto in the airport, I'm just going to go up to him and say, "Listen, if you need any tips, mate, I'm very happy to to, to give you give you a helping hand." But uh, yeah, it was all all good fun. Th- those were great cars, you know. That the 2009 cars po- powered by that Ferrari engine. It was a very unsuitable engine for a single seater, but actually they did Ferrari did a good job with it and uh, it was a cracking car and we we really enjoyed working with it and um yeah, we had some great races in A one G P and actually, you know, people say to me A one G P failed. It actually it didn't fail because what A what A one G P proved is that there is demand around the world for open wheel single seater racing other than formula one and actually when you look at the success that formula e has had people are kind of surprised that formula e has had a niche well actually the, i think the proof for formula e was for a1gp because it just goes to show there are lots of cities and lots of countries around the world who would love to have an open wheel single seater motor racing and they know they, they know they can't afford formula one but they could have uh something else and uh I still, I, I do still think that there's an opportunity to to develop series like that in the future. I think it's something that Liberty, you know, I th- I do think it's a growth opportunity for for Formula One in the in the future to have um have something that's that's closer to Formula One in terms of a second tier, you know, a, 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 perhaps even a tick Formula Two and do something a little bit more meaty. I kind of feel like Formula Two and Formula Three are so driven downwards below formula one kind they're kind of pushed into the ground and i think that again if you look at the history of formula one formula two back in the 1960s was the kind of thing that a formula one driver might actually take part in and i you know i still i do think that there are lots of scopes to to develop uh racing in the future it just requires people to be a little bit more open-minded about what they might do with it what I'd want to do is I want to ask you our, our two questions that we ask every single guest when they come on here. Okay. Um, just just so we can at the end at the end of the season kind of look back and see who was right, who was wrong. <laughs> who, who... <laughs> oh, if <dear>. you had, <laughs> if you had five English pounds right here, right now, and the bookmaker was standing in front of you saying, 
you've got to pick one. Who would you pick? Would you pick uh, the seven-time champion Lewis Hamilton to win the, this year's championship, or would you choose uh, the young pretender to the throne, Max Verstappen? I would put my money on Max. Oh, because I think the Red Bull is a fundamentally faster car, um, and I think that if we hadn't had the collision in Silverstone and we hadn't mm-hmm. had the first lap catastrophe in Hungary, I think Max would have won one or both those races, and yeah. I think we would look at the championship in quite a different way at the moment. Um I do think that Honda have thrown the kitchen sink at this year and will continue to do so. And I think Red Bull will also continue to do whatever they need to do to give Max the car um, to to just have an edge over Lewis at enough races. Uh, and I say that in full recognition of the fact that the only way that Max is going to win the championship is if he does everything perfectly for the rest of this season. Because if he makes mm. mistakes, Lewis Hamilton will nail him to the wall every single time. And yeah. what you saw in Silverstone was a real marker going down from Lewis, which is that Max now knows that Lewis is prepared to have an accident rather than give way. And we are we are in the teeth of a formidable duel. Those guys are not going to give each other an inch. And so... I'd put my money in Mac because I think the Red Bull has a slight edge. Um, but I'll say one other caveat, and that is that I have a funny feeling that the deciding factor is going to be which one of the number twos does a better job mm. at supporting them. And yeah. I think that it. when I saw Sergio crash on the way to the grid at the weekend, I just thought, you know, this is not what Max needs. Max needs Sergio Perez to be right there as his wingman in the same way that Lewis Hamilton needs Valtteri Bottas to be right there as his wingman to open up the strategy options and to Mm. give him track position opportunities. Um, So the dynamic there is a really interesting one because I think that Sergio has just been, he's just had his contract renewed. So he's calm. Um, which was another reason was a bit silly that he stuck it in the wall um, on the way to the grid. Um, <laughs> Valtteri's in a different place, and Valtteri's clearly not been a completely happy bunny at times at Mercedes this year. And I think if this weekend we get the press release saying George Russell to Mercedes, uh, Valtteri to Alfa Romeo, the question is how does Valtteri approach the rest of this season? Now, he's such a professional. Mm. I have no doubt he will give everything to support Lewis and to do the best. He, he, Valtteri will know, if he's leaving the team, Valtteri will know this is probably his last opportunity to ever win a Grand Prix. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, so the whole dynamic is going to be really, really interesting. But to go back to your question, if I had my five English pounds and the bookmaker in front of me... <laughs> I think I'd take a sip of Red Bull and put it behind Max. Is that is that because you were are you are you showing a bit of a bias here, or is it, or have you, or is your opinion maybe changed over the season? Is, uh, is it, I know you, you you obviously worked for but Red Bull. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, I and I still you know have friends there, and and obviously DC who I work with a lot. He's he's an ambassador for Red Bull. Um, yeah. No, I'm I'm not actually. Um, I live down the road from Mercedes Benz and. 
um, one of my neighbours here is, is you know works for Mercedes, and I I I have, I'm a huge fan of Toto Wolf. I mean, not not just the Mercedes team, but I think Toto is mm-hmm. such a smart guy, and and James Allison. I mean, I think what they've got there in that team is is pretty special. So they are formidable competitors, but I'm purely going on the fact that I feel like Red Bull and and Honda have rolled the dice for this year. It's come up with a double six. They've got a car that can win the championship for them. This is their opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. We talked about the regulations earlier. It caused a few problems for Mercedes earlier on the season. They seem to have gotten gotten on top of that. Um, I just feel so. It's not a bias. It's actually a genuine feeling that Red Bull have done a pretty mighty job in making the step that they have made this year. And I really do think that if Lewis and Max had not collided at Silverstone, Max would have won that race or maybe yeah. finished second. Um, and I certainly think in Hungary, you know, Max would have made a good fist of it in the race. So. I just feel like this might be their moment, and if it's if it's not to be, I'll be as delighted as any Hamilton fan to see him win another world championship. But he will have won this year's world championship in the teeth of a really serious challenge from Max and from Red Bull. So it won't be another boring Red Bull. It won't be a boring Mercedes Benz walkover. It will have been. Well, he certainly hasn't. No, absolutely not. You know. <laughs> Uh, just as a final point, guys, you know, here we are talking about Formula One in 2021. We're in the midst of a golden era. I mean, this is a this is such a golden era of Formula One. The regulations have matured. The the, mm. the, the field has bunched up. You know, the fact that George Russell can stick his Williams on the P2 in the wet conditions in Spa, the fact that Lando Norris might have been gone for pole position, um, you know, but he had his unfortunate accident. Um, the fact that Red Bull... And Mercedes are head to head. We have these two drivers, wheel to wheel combat. You know, people were outraged by what happened in Silverstone with the collision. You know, this is this is Prost Senna all over again, and we still talk about yes. Prost and Senna thirty years later. Mm. We're we're living a new Prost and Senna, but it's Verstappen, Hamilton, and they're both fantastic racing drivers. Really, really brilliant. So, you know, it's a golden era. Enjoy every second of it. Let's hope the new regulations don't screw all of that up and uh, you know um, and we get because, a Haas walking away with the championship yeah I mean honestly if if, uh, if Haas win the next seven world championship titles it's going to be so goddamn depressing I mean you know you haven't been any meetings in Paris this year about next year have you <laughs> no, 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 no. anyway but it's very nice. It's it's uh, very nice to meet the three of you, and I hope no well, our paths cross one day, and we can have a beer somewhere. <laughs> we would absolutely love you to be a, a guest in the future. It's been great having been you. Been a pleasure chatting to you, and thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Cheers. Thanks again. Bye. Looking forward to the weekend. We are heading to the Netherlands for the first time in thirty-six much, years. Uh, a racetrack called Bye-bye. Zandvoort. Uh, F1 hasn't been there, as just, as I've just mentioned, for 36 years. And we're going to have what should be uh, an epic race uh, after the damp squib that was uh, Bel- the Belgian Grand Prix. Uh, Coops, what are you specifically looking forward to uh, with the Zandvoort? The fans are going to be nuts. <laughs> uh, the track's interesting. 
I mean, it's been on the Formula One game. I know it's not the same thing. It's a very, it's a very tight track. It's deceptively tight uh, in the game, which I'm imagining is going to be pretty similar. Uh, and we haven't raced in a banked corner since Indianapolis, and we all mm. know how that worked out. <laughs> uh, Let's hope he's not a repeat of 2005. No, I, th- I think the <laughs> tyres have moved on from that time, but it's definitely going to be interesting. Uh, you know, if the fans can give, like Nigel Mansell said, it was like five-tenths or two-tenths or whatever the quote was, uh, you know, if the fans give that kind of extra help to Verstappen, he's going to lap the whole field twice. It's it's going to be it's going to be a, a good race to watch. It's something that'll be, I might actually tune in and watch all the practice sessions, and it's going to be entertaining. However, apparently, it's raining on Sunday. Don't say it. Don't say it. We've had enough. Uh, we've had enough rain. As much as <laughs> we've 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 been we've always prayed that we want rain in Formula One races. We've had far too much of it now. <laughs> Give it a rest. Yes. No more. So, on, on that note, Sean, what are you looking forward to with Zanzibar? Honestly, qualifying. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I don't think the race is going to be great unless it rains and we actually get some wet raining, wet running. <laughs> um, okay. I think if it's a dry race, um, I know it's not, you know, apples for apples, but I have been playing it on the game a fair bit. We'll have a, I'll have an actual, like, onboard hot lap, a bit like we did for Belgium, coming up uh, this week on Thursday on the Everything F1 Facebook page. Um, doing an actual turn-by-turn lap guide of the track because obviously it's a brand new circuit to most Formula 1 fans, most current Formula 1 fans who, well, everyone really, it wasn't the same in 1985, was it? Anyway, um, mm. I think qualifying is going to be spectacular. I think it's going to be like Monaco Suzuka level cool to see the cars flat out, uh, especially through like turn seven, that blind downhill right-hander. I reckon Max Verstappen Probably Lewis Hamilton will take that flat out in Q3 for the pole lap. Um, that's going to be <laughs> some something else. Um, I'm not overly looking forward to the race. I think the fans, even just watching on TV, will definitely add to it, like Coop said. And it is that, that kind of extra tenth, two tenths that the fans give you. Um, I actually even said it to my girlfriend the other day that I think Matt, if... if uh, you know, if if the the crowd are that loud, Max Max will just walk away with it. If he sticks it on pole, that's it. He'll vanish. He Red Red, Red Bull mm. might get a bit annoyed at him because their sponsors are going to get no TV time. It'll be like the Vettel days again. <laughs> he'll be anonymous. He'll he'll be watching himself mm. on the TV like Vettel used to do. That's my prediction for if it's a, if it's a completely dry race. Um, but no, I think qualifying is going to be really interesting. I think it's a cool circuit. Like like uh, Coop said, the banking is going to be fascinating. I think genuinely, mm-hmm. I honestly think a lot of time will be gained by how the driver's balls are for how close they want to get to that wall. Um, <laughs> because the higher line you take, the faster you get, especially like leading onto your lap. Um, yeah, it's it's something different, and it's 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 an old school track. You know, we were talking with with, with Mark um, about how like the runoff areas are kind of spoiling certain tracks, but Zamvord, even with its runoff areas on the heavy braking zones, is still basically grass and gravel all uh, everywhere mm. um so if you make a mistake you're going in the grass you will be punished at this track um not at massively high speed we don't want to see someone like beaching their car upside down after a 200 mile an hour crash obviously but you know lock lock a wheel into into turn eight and you're gonna get stuck in the grass and it's as simple as that um and i think we'll see a lot of mistakes a lot of really clumsy mistakes 
it's a new track it's fresh circuit the drivers have only ever driven it on the circuits oh sorry on the the simulators um it definitely throws up something really new i think it'll be more exciting than some of the other new tracks this season just to, to watch the atmosphere of it obviously i'm holding my anticipation for the race it's a tight and twisty circuit there's not going to be a lot of overtaking the longest straight is barely a kilometer long if even that but <laughs> i i think for qualifying alone it's going to be a fun weekend it's always great to see something new in formula one it is well let's talk about the track then so the circuit is of course zandvoort it's 4.259 kilometers uh, we're going to have a total race distance of 306.648 kilometers and we're going to have 72 laps in total now of course we haven't got a lap record to refer to because uh, it's the first race in this arrangement at zandvoort um but we did have we did race there 36 years ago uh, and but the first actual gp uh, in Zandvoort was in 1952. Uh, again, that, that layout would have been completely different. Um, the times that you can tune in to watch all the different uh, free practices and qualifying sessions and the race sessions, of course, uh, these are UK times, of course, adjust accordingly depending on your location. Uh, Friday, free practice one and two. So the first one is at 10.30 a.m. till 11.30 a.m. Free practice two is 2 p.m. till 3 p.m. Free practice three on Saturday will be 11 a.m. till 12 p.m. And then the exciting thing that Sean is looking forward to the most, <laughs> the qualifying session is at 2 p.m. until 3 p.m. with a race on Sunday, the main event, at 2 p.m. Set your alarms on your phones, put it into your calendars at work, at home, wherever you organise your life uh, and make sure you don't miss out because it's going to be a great race. Well, I think, I think it's going to be a great race. I think it's something that's going to be new uh, and exciting to witness um so let's get straight into our predictions then i want a first second and third from you a first dnf and then the number of finishers so uh coops we'll go to you Verstappen, hamilton norris no uh yuki sonoda is going to be bennett on the banking <laughs> and there'll be 18 finishers same question to you sean Verstappen, leclerc norris we said tight twisty circuit where did Charles Leclerc stick it on pole this year twice the tight mm, twisty circuit this circuit will favour Ferrari I reckon uh, Verstappen will do a complete lap before Leclerc even gets to the finish line but Verstappen Leclerc Norris is my prediction I think I think Perez is going to bin it oh. we, we were saying he's you know Mark said he's comfortable and then stuck it in the wall he's nothing to play for anymore does he I mean like Christian Horner is going to have to talk him up you know wingman time um, but <laughs> yeah I think he's 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 not in the best head frame at the moment and kind of hasn't been since he won in Baku um, so mm. I'm going to put Perez in the wall um, and I reckon there will be 60 15 finishers I'm going to say I think we'll get some some accidents Ooh. and some clumsy mistakes at this race Oh, okay. I'm going to go for. You know, it's hard to go against Max Verstappen really at his home circuit, isn't it? Um, go on then. I'm going to go for Max Verstappen. I'm going to go with the flow here. Uh, Max Verstappen. Ah, I don't want to be predictable. I want to. I want to throw something something wild in there. Let's go. Max Verstappen, Lando Norris, uh, and Lewis Hamilton. So I think Lando is going to outscore uh, Lewis. I don't. I don't know why. Maybe the maybe the shower will come that. That Coops has uh, alluded to uh, when he was discussing 
the track earlier. Um, I'm going to say first DNF will be. I'm going to say Ocon again because I said he was he was going to come down with a thump, but he, unfortunately he didn't. Well, unfortunately or fortunately, he didn't have the opportunity to at Belgium uh, in the Belgium Grand Prix. Um, so I think he'll come down to earth with a bump after his win. So I think he'll have a DNF. Uh, number of finishes, I think probably about 16 as well. I'm going to say 16 because uh, I think it's a new track. There are going to be mistakes made and there's that banking banking that's going to catch a few people out too. Okay, well, that's our predictions for the race. Let's. I'm sure you've probably got your own opinions, uh, those listeners out there. By all means, if you uh, if you do think something different, mention it on our page, on, on one of our prediction posts that we do put up over the weekend. Let's talk about some news that have dropped news that's dropped over the last uh, few days uh, just in case obviously people haven't seen it um, and this will be the first time you're hearing it um, the driver market rumors it's not really news as such uh, but the the rumor is that at Monza we're going to hear that uh, George Russell will get the Mercedes seat hooray uh, Valtteri Bottas will be moving to Alfa Romeo taking over Kimi Raikkonen's seat because he's going to retire at the end of 2021. Now let's talk about the plausibility of this first. Uh, we'll go to you first, Sean. Um, it, it's plausible, isn't it? It is plausible. It's silly season. It's still, I think anything's plausible. Um, I have been reading a lot that you know the deal is done with George. Um, I think after after Belgium, you know, in Belgium, like. Whatever we've kind of spoken about the controversy of the point system, whether the race should have happened to Belgium or whatever. But if nothing else, Mister mm. Saturday got a reward. I think he's got twenty-three Q two or better appearances now in fifty races. So in a Williams mm. and one Mercedes, um, he's almost fifty percent in at least Q, like getting out of Q three, which is an insane, incredible. Um, so, Mr. Yeah. Saturday, I think the trophy, whether however tone deaf the podium ceremony was, was you know just rewards for like two three years worth of work, not just that one lap in in Belgium. So, I think the deal is done. I'm going to hold firm on what I've been saying for a couple of weeks now on the podcast that I don't think they'll announce it mid season. Oh, okay. I I the, the rumors have been spreading for weeks now. It was definitely happening in Silverstone, and then it was definitely happening in the first race back after the 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 summer break. I've no doubt the deal is done. I, I'd actually even take my fiver off Max Verstappen to win the championship and put it on that George Russell's deal is done. Um, but I don't think. And again, it comes back to what we were saying with Mark. You know, the the the, the balance of power in in coming into the the, the latter half of this season. It's all, yeah, you know, obviously Max Max and Lewis have to be 10 out of 10 every single week. And if anyone's going to do it, it's the two of them. Uh, and if one slips up, the other will nail them to the wall for it. It'll come down to their wingmen. And Toto and Lewis know this. And Valtteri kind of knows this as well. Um, and I I just, yes, Toto is going to give Russell the, the seat. He has to. But I think, I still think he just respects Bottas too much and knows there's way too much at stake not even just for Lewis but for Red Bull or sorry for Mercedes because if Perez gets his act together you know Red Bull will win the Constructors Championship too and that's what Toto cares more about I don't think he's going to upset Valtteri by sticking him in the public eye because obviously then he'll be in every press conference for weeks Mm. Um, and we know what Valtteri's like when he's left alone is when he's at his best but when he's put in the public eye it's the pressure that gets to him um, and I just don't think they'll put him under that scrutiny, that spotlight um, for the rest of the season, at, at least until the championship's decided. Um, okay. 
Well, Coops, that, that's my thoughts on it. Yeah, that's fine. Coops, what what are your thoughts on these rumours? Uh, I think it doesn't really make much difference. If the deal's done, the drivers already know. I mean, if you look at after qualifying in Spa, you look at how much of a smile Russell had in his face, obviously, but then you look at Total Will. I mean, he that's a smile of a guy who knew the guy who was getting <laughs> in his car next year. Uh, uh, I think the reason it's been delayed is because I think Toto said that he had a lot of respect for Valtteri and he wasn't just going to you know, leave him out to dry. He was working to get him another seat, so they were waiting for other things to happen. Uh, so uh, I think the rumour of him going to Alfa Romeo is probably going to happen. I think Kimi kind of knows he's pretty much done. He's made a few pretty un- unforced errors running into his teammate at one of the races. I can't remember which one that was. Uh, you know, he's just not Kimmy anymore, I think. He's, he's slowly becoming a bit of a parody of himself, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and we all know it's just a hobby to <laughs> Kimmy anyway, you yeah. know, so it's not a big deal for him. So, you know, I mean, there's other rumours coming out that Giovinazzi could be losing his seat at Alfa Romeo as well, but again, we're going a wee bit more silly season with that one. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's feasible. Uh, I've said all along that there's no way else, there's no way that you could have a talent like Russell not go to Mercedes it kind of has to go that way uh, I think uh, and I think they'll probably I'm going to go against Sean and think that they probably will announce it at some point during the season I think the knowing but not being able to talk about it is worse than just knowing right okay my future lies elsewhere I'm going to help with one last chance to help them beat Red Bull I think uh, would work more in the favour of Mercedes than not having it, you know, because it'll eat away at him. He'll want to say something, he'll want to talk about it, and if he's not allowed to talk about it, even though the deal's done, I think that'll be a that'll be a more annoying than just doing it and getting all of them done with and working that way. We can only see. Uh, I I I I, the, I I was, and you will all you'll all attest to this, uh, and and our listeners as well. Um, I was saying up until very recently that I think that Mercedes are going to stick with Bottas because why would why would they rock the boat? Uh, my my mind has been changed now with all the rumours, all the people that we, all the professionals that we've spoken to. I, I I've I'm happy about it. I, I want to see George Russell in that seat. I'm absolutely ecstatic. Uh, well, if if and when it happens. Um, but yeah, I it's it, I think I think it's plausible. I think it's it's probably realistic, and I think it's going to happen. And I think we'll probably hear it at Monza. I think uh, Mark alluded to maybe this, maybe even this weekend at Zandvoort. But we'll see. We can only we can only wait and see. Yeah, I think there's another wee rumor I've just found online as we were talking, and according to the Italian edition of mm-hmm. Motorsport.com, Alex Albon is Williams' first choice to replace George oh, really? Wow, first choice. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of drivers yep, available uh, to that. I mean, Callum Eilat was also on uh, Twitter himself. He said he, he said he has something I to announce. He has something to announce. So yeah, yeah, but he's a he's a yeah. Ferrari so, Academy driver. But will he? So because then there's Nick DeVries has also got you know links. apparently. Well, apparently Nick DeVries, Nick DeVries, and Juan Hugo are also the next and third option. Isn't Juan Hugo a Renault driver? Uh, Renault an Alpine, driver. Alpine. Yeah. No. yeah. He's an Alpine uh, young driver. 
Nick De Vries is in the Mercedes Formula E team. Mm. He's just won the title, and they're pulling so out. I think next the link. Season, I think, I think so, the link. Uh, I think it's more realistic that De Vries would go to Williams over the Alpha. Just in my kind of only own deduction, I'm, I'm obviously I don't know anything here. And, and then for Ilot to take the Alpha seat, where that, that's what my would be, leave, would be leaving. That, 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 that's how I'd guess. Anyway. That's what my money would be on. I think if any of these kind of fringe and junior drivers deserve their spaces I said all along Callum Eilert should have been on the grid this year of course he should um, he absolutely should have he's a spectacularly good talent like a champion in waiting I know we say that about a lot of people but Callum Eilert genuinely is a, a very good talent I, th- I think there'll be I think the 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 the, the seat at William has been late, uh, been fought between getting Nick DeFries in there and maybe Callum Eilert between looking at others but the one thing you need to think though is the new agreement with Alfa Romeo and Sauber it doesn't have the Ferrari seat tied to it anymore yes yeah I remember that it, so the, the, there's the free so they now have that free decision, interesting uh, which is probably where Giovinazzi could get slid aside because he was in there because mm. of the Ferrari link uh, that's interesting because then there is the possibility for Callum Eilat and Valtteri Bottas to both go to Alpha next year. I suppose mm-hmm. that is that. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I think that's a very good That's not a bad, that's not a bad lineup. <laughs> um, We've worked it out. We've done it. We've done it. We've worked it out here on the podcast. Just they need to hire us. Why don't the teams hire us to sort out their issues and sort out their drivers? Be great. So it's, so we've got so to, so to break it down. Eilat yep. and Bottas yep. at Alpha Romeo. Giovinazzi's gone, right? Uh, Kimi yep, Raikkonen's yep. retiring. Then who who's going to Williams then? Latifi and Nick De Vries. And Nick De Vries, right? Okay, sorted. George and Russell then we've got George fine, Russell right? at Mercedes. Boom, done. Boom, you heard done. it here first, sorted. folks. If that if there is anything different to that, they it's the teams that are wrong and not us. Not us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, the the only other the only other teams the only other teams to announce, I think, were. Uh, Alpha Tauri, but I think they're going to stick with their lineup. I don't I think, think they're so. going to change it. They, yeah. they'll, they'll stick with those two, I think. I don't think there's much argument there, to be honest. Cool. Well, that's that's mm-hmm. a roundup of the latest rumours from around the grid. Thank you very much for listening to our podcast today. Uh, I hope we hope you've enjoyed the the interview with Mark Gallagher, uh, and of course our preview of the Zandvoort uh, Grand Prix this coming weekend. We look forward to speaking to you next week after what will hopefully have been a really eventful weekend where we'll have loads to chat to you uh, this has been me james tiller from everything everyone coops thanks very much for joining us today thank you bye and thank you very much to sean thank you slangerfall which is goodbye for now at irish oh there you go and thanks again for mark uh, gallagher for joining us for that epic podcast we have been everything f1 you can find us on all of our socials at join ef1 that's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We've also got a Discord server, and we do also have our shiny website, www.everythingf1.com. All that's left for me to say is thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 EF1 Podcast.